Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. You're listening to episode number four, and my guest for this episode is Chef Gavin Job. Thanks so much, Gavin, for meeting me on your day off. I uh, really feel like I took advantage of your time, so I really appreciate you meeting up with me and hanging out. And I hope all of you out there really enjoy this episode. I know I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation with Gavin. It was a real honor to sit in his restaurant, actually, and hear him talk about something that he's always wanted to do and is now doing every single day. Um, And that is being a chef and running a restaurant and preparing food for people um, so that they can have a good time. And so we talked, obviously, for over two and a half hours. I really feel like I learned quite a bit from this conversation, not just about food, but about life in general and hustling and following your passions. Um, I really hope you guys enjoy listening to this. Again, thanks, Gavin. And without further ado, please welcome Chef Gavin Job. So we are sitting in your restaurant. That's correct. That's pretty cool. I've like always thought, first of all, I've always loved eating out. I hate preparing my own food, which you will not identify with because you've been preparing food for a long time. But I love the restaurant experience and I always thought it'd be cool and like, oh, fun to run a restaurant. And I literally just posted a podcast with our um, mutual former teacher, Mr. Moland. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And I told him at the beginning of his episode, I was like, I always thought it'd be fun to be a teacher. And so now I'm telling you the same thing, which is like poor yeah. interview. Did he Did he laugh? Uh, he said it's not it's not fun to be a teacher. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is it fun to be a restaurateur? Um, so it has its... Being a restaurateur has its ups and downs. It's what I've wanted to do since, I'll say I wanted to be a chef since I was five years old. Um, I said it forever. I took a detour from that track for a little bit. Uh, I was convinced to go to college, even though like I wanted just to go to culinary school. Um, I'm glad I took the path I took, but yeah, I mean, restaurants are a blast when things are going well, which is rarely. Um, but they're also like the challenges are fun. Um, what's know. like the, what's like the, like your today's Monday and you're closed on Monday. So when we leave here, you'll lock up and then like tomorrow morning, what time are you waking up to come run the restaurant? Um, so tomorrow I actually have, I have to be in new Orleans for a traffic ticket. I got crossing the causeway. <laughs> so we had, we had nice. a spot in new Orleans, uh, and when we first opened the spot in New Orleans, uh, I got two tickets in a week crossing the causeway until I figured wow. out you have to do cruise control on the causeway. <laughs> nice. Um, but I hate speeding no- tickets, by the way. Yeah. I, gotta, I just paid one. Yeah. They're, I've the worst. Few. They're the worst. So I've got to be there. And then I'm going to our New Orleans location. We're rolling out a couple new menu items. Uh, the New Orleans location is just, um, it's a food, uh, it's in a market with uh, eight other vendors. Pythian? Pythian Market. Okay. Um, We're in the CBD, and it's basically walk-up counter service. There's a computer, POS system, a pizza oven, and then we have our cooks. Nice. That's it. Very small menu. There's a few other people you can order from, um, and it's really just pizza. That's called Maribo Pizza. It's an offshoot of this, which is a full service. Um, We're modern Italian, wood-fired pizzas, which is what kind of we're known for. Um, to my chagrin, I would 
you know, yes, we sell pizza. We're not a pizza restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, we make all of our pastas in house. We're a completely scratch restaurant. What's the money maker? Is the pizza the money pizza maker? Pizza is the highest margin item for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, and and we sell the most of that. Um, is it because like, is it because just people like pizza, or is it because they think that Mariba's is pizza place? So, pizza is like the most popular food in America. Right. So it's not, you know, there's no arguing that that has something to do with it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we make a very good pizza. It took us a long time to be happy with the product we serve. We worked on it for a long time. Um, You can't tell from looking at me through this podcast, but I'm clearly not Italian. (laughs) Um, So that was not the motivation to do Italian food. And really for me, even Italian so I tell people all the time, people ask me to describe Maribo. You can't really say Italian food. It's too vague. Um, Italy is super region specific. So like Northern Italy, what they're eating there, the diet is very different than Southern Italy. Mm. Um, most Italians in Louisiana are Sicilian or from around that area. Um, and they eat, you know, and it's really even Sicilian American. Like it's the red gravy, the lasagna, your grandma cooked the gravy on the stove all day on Sunday. And we never wanted to compete against that. You're not going to beat anybody's grandmother. You know, it's the same reason why I hesitated for a very long time in Baton Rouge to ever serve a gumbo because that's like my uncle makes the best gumbo or mm-hmm. my dad makes the best gumbo or I make the best gumbo. So you go to a restaurant and you get it, you're judging it against your own and against like tradition and history of what you grew up on. And very rarely is a restaurant going to win that battle. Mm-hmm. So for me, I would rather serve stuff that you're not going to get at home or that you didn't grow up on. Um, so that we're not competing against your grandmother. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got no desire to do that. So for us, pizza to get back to that pizza is um, it's very popular because it's pizza. Even right. I say this all the time too. even bad pizza is pretty good. You know, like fast food pizza, Domino's pizza, Papa John's. None of it's terrible. Yeah. You know, like I've got pretty strong opinions. Like I don't like Papa John's and I can tell Same. you why I don't like, Papa I think John's. the sauce is too sweet. Yeah. I think the cheese they use like is weird and how it melts. It doesn't get like stringy. It kind of clumps up together and everybody always references like the garlic butter. I'm like, yeah, then just go get Domino's and get some <laughs> garlic butter from Papa John's mm-hmm. and then it'll be better than Papa John's. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I grew up, my favorite fast food pizza was pizza hut. Cause I like how the bottom got crispy, almost like focaccia does. Um, you know, our style of pizza is Neapolitan style, uh, which is uh, kind of the original pizza, Naples, Italy, it's where pizza came from. Um, it's a thinner crust. To be true Neapolitan pizza, you have to be verified by the Council on Neapolitan Pizza in Italy. They've got a packet of papers. You have to meet all these requirements. You have to go through all this? We do not. We're not. Oh, okay. I'm not claiming to be true Neapolitan. Oh, so if you like use the name. If you say we're Neapolitan, you have to be verified by them. Mm-hmm. Italy is very, very strict on everything. Cheese, wine, pizza. They're very strict about preserving their heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're they're crazy, you know, stringent about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do Neapolitan style, but it's also a little different. We use a lower hydration rate in our dough because I want our dough to be a little crispier. So it's got a lower water content. Um, We don't use the type of flour they say you should use because it costs four times as much. (laughs) And um, 
especially if you have to import it from Italy as opposed to just getting it there. Uh, Is that on top like of why that, they tell you you have to use it because it costs four part tons of it? Of well, and yeah. because you have to get it from Italy. Right. So if people in the U.S. want to use it and people in China want to say they're Neapolitan, then it helps Italy's economy right. to say for you to use this, you have to buy this stuff from us. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, and so it's it's not all economically driven, but a lot of it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and we tried, you know, when we tried our dough recipe, which we settled on after months of trying different stuff and trying them side by side, we didn't think it made a significant difference at all to make it better. And if it was better, I would have charged you another dollar for the pizzas and bought the better flour because mm-hmm. the dough isn't, I mean, the dough is the cheapest part of this whole process. So, you know, a pizza dough cost me, 10 cents it would have cost me 30 cents it's not like a massive difference yeah i just didn't think it was better what's like that so what's the uh average price of a pizza at so we charge um between um let's see between 10 and 14 dollars for a 12 inch pizza um and then we do we do a very strong happy hour um which is three to six every day Pizzas are all seven bucks nice. and then beers are half price as draft and bottle. All specialty cocktails are $5 and then we offer a $5 red and white wine. So do that every day. And then Wednesday, all day. So Wednesday all day is happier. nuts. Wednesday's wow. nuts. Nice. Um, it's our busiest day of the week. As far as quantity of people that come through, sometimes it's the busiest day all, overall, even sales wise. Um, but that is even beating the weekend. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, sometimes so is, that, is that like something, I mean, what made you come up with all day happy hour? Where did you, how'd you get I don't there? remember how we started that. We came up with it. Wednesday was just a pretty slow day. Like we're, we're, we're closed on Mondays, Tuesday through Sunday. We're open Tuesday is kind of slow, but everybody kind of accepts Tuesday being a slow day. Wednesday was dead. Like we would be we'd get six tables, you wow. know, and a lot of, I mean, a lot of times, you know, people don't realize that there's times in restaurant, the life of a restaurant, if you're not, if you don't have a big advertising budget, you know, you open and you don't just crush it out the gate. Like there's going to be days where like you spend more money on paying employees than came in. Mm. And, uh, you know, especially if you're not established, you don't have a track record. People don't know to come to your places, um, you know, and we're in a small town where once the initial wave of people come when we first opened, it was nuts. It's crazy. Yeah. Everybody in Covington came, but it, they came for the first two months. And then, you know, we're just not going to be some people's thing. Understood. Also, we've changed a lot since then. We've gotten better at things we do. We've changed our price point a little bit. We were probably priced 10% too high at first. Mm-hmm. And we realized that and have slowly made price adjustments down, maybe even 15%. Um, and we've also become more, as I've grown as a chef and understood better um, what people want out of a restaurant and that that's even changed in American dining. No doubt. Um, we've our goal is to have been more become more of a neighborhood restaurant that is just a really good neighborhood restaurant. We're not trying to push boundaries, really. You know, we'll have some challenging dishes on the menu. When I say challenging, like not your typical stuff, a little more out there. Um, 
but we just want a place that people really enjoy coming to. Um, and there's no pretense or um, anything like that. So do the waiters carry around white cloths and stuff? No. So we're no tablecloth. <laughs> so when, when my partner and I opened the restaurant originally, we made a list of stuff that we hated okay. in restaurants. Sweet. What was the list? It was long. Um, <laughs> the big things um, it was like tablecloths. And it's and not just like, oh, we hate tablecloths. It's like we hate tablecloths for these reasons. One, it elevates the guest's perception of what they're getting into. Mm-hmm. And it also eliminate it knocks some people out. It's going to make some people feel uncomfortable. If you We want people to be able to walk in in shorts and a T-shirt and feel comfortable. You know, I remember... Um, I don't know why my parents allowed this, but for my sister's 16th birthday, I took her to New York. I was 18. We went to see Wicked on Broadway and they let us go to New York, just me and her. Um, And, you know, I was huge into food at the time. We're walking around New York City and I'm seeing all these restaurants I had heard of or read about. And this is the Internet existed, but not well. Yeah. So most of the stuff I read at the time was through magazines or, you know, there's a few message boards I would look at stuff on. And, um, you know, one of the, a huge chef at the time was Bobby Flay. Mm-hmm. And he had a restaurant uh, called Bar American in New York City and Mesa Grill and a few other restaurants. A lot of people know him only as like this TV guy, but mm-hmm. he was actually hugely successful in New York before TV came about. So a lot of people think a lot of chefs hated him kind of because he like sold out and went to TV. But he was like a really talented chef in New York and brought some cool, unique like flavors, kind of like Southwest stuff to New York when that wasn't being done. So I knew who he was and we're walking down the street and I'm in. I still remember what I was wearing. I was wearing like camouflage cargo shorts and an orange paintball store shirt. That's <laughs> what I wore all the time. And, the paintball days. and my sister, you know, it's raining outside. We don't have an umbrella and we're like going from like overhang to overhang. Yeah. yeah. We look like drowned rats. And I see it's 1050 in the morning. Um, on ne- This is like, to me, one of the most, the, one of the hospitality experiences stuck out to me of my whole life. Um, and I see him like, Oh my God, that's bar American. Holy shit. Like I've, that's Bobby Flay's that's spot. The thing. And I'm like, I'm going to look at, they always have the menu posted outside in the little yeah. glass frame. So I'm looking and I'm like, Holy shit. That's wild. I'm looking, and this is like, so this is go back to America dining 14 years ago, thir- 13 years ago. Um, he has a Wagyu burger. That's not a thing that you saw 13 years ago. Mm-hmm. That's that started eight years ago in where we live. Mm-hmm. That's when you started seeing that on like chain restaurant menus, mm-hmm. Kobe sliders. Mm-hmm. You know, he had that and he had I remember seeing that and be like, wow, like I knew what Wagyu beef was. Almost nobody in America knew what that was back I then. I still don't know what it is. You know, <laughs> it, it's a breed of cattle, right? Yeah. That's got some Japanese lineage. But it's, you know, known for its marbling and flavor. Right? I'm like, man, I've never even seen that. Never seen it on a menu before. Mm-hmm. You know, I've certainly never eaten it. I'm like, man, that's so cool. It's like a $23 hamburger, you know. Nice. I'm just looking at their lunch menu. And and back then, that's even more crazy sounding. Like now, everybody's seen a $20 hamburger in a menu right. now. But yeah, yeah. 13 years that's ago, yeah, crazy. True. You didn't. I was like, burgers were $7. Right, yeah. Um, you know, and so I'm looking in the window. They're not open. They don't open until 11. I'm looking in the window. And this Mater D guy walks up he's like suited you know and I'm, he opens the door and i'm expecting to be like hey don't put your greasy face on the glass and he's like we all trying to dine with us today and i'm like oh you know like 
we're not really dressed for it. You know, like we're wet and gross and, you know, like you don't open for, he's like, come inside. And I was like, what? Like goosebumps. Like I'm about to go in this place. Yeah. Right. Like I've at this point, since I've been, I've been like watching food television and cooking and like reading about this stuff for two thirds of my life. You know, it's like really what I want to do. And uh, he's like, y'all come inside. And I'm, he's, I'm like, you know, like, are you sure? Hey, come inside. And I'm like, he's like, do y'all, would y'all like to have lunch? And I'm like, yes, sir. And he <laughs> says, I'm like, but you could just like put us like in the corner or something. Mm -hmm. Like, and I literally like say this and this guy walks us in and puts us at a table in like the very middle of the restaurant. Sweet. And, you know, acted like. You belong. We there. could have been the most important. Like we could have been celebrities, you yeah. know, like no difference. And, you know, the wait staff was phenomenal. The food was great. And like to this day, one of the most memorable meals I've ever had. I remember the whole thing. I remember what I got, what my sister got. She got a swordfish sandwich. It was the first time I'd ever seen arugula on a sandwich before. You know, like we had a trio of ceviches as an appetizer. What is a ceviche? Ceviche is marinated raw fish or okay. seafood, right? right? And I had never eaten ceviche before. I had seen it. Yeah. Never had it. Seen it on TV. And I'm, I had probably, I might even have made it at the time. I can't remember, but never had it in a restaurant. Yeah. And I'm like, like looking around, it's this beautiful restaurant. And, you know, like, I think the most expensive lunch I'd ever had in my life. I think it ended up being like $120 or something <laughs> wow. like that yeah. with no alcohol, obviously. Like, or a hundred bucks. And, um, but I just remember being blown away by that being made to feel that welcome. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's actually, there's a, I have a tattoo on my arm, my right forearm, your traditional serving arm. Was definitely going to ask you about that. Yeah. So it's a quote from uh, Briat Savarin, who's a French, basically the first food writer. Mm -hmm. He was a French gourmand and philosopher. He was a lawyer. He had a great aunt who had no children. She died. And she left him a massive fortune under the condition that he took her last name. She had nobody to carry on her family's last name. Mm. So his name was like Jean-Louis Anthelme Briat. And he added Dash Savarin, which was her family family's last name. And with this massive fortune, he was like, I'm not working anymore. I'm going to travel around the world and eat and write about it. Wow. And he wrote books on eating and hospitality and food. And like he toured all the great restaurants of France and would write like reviews and stuff. When, basically. When was, it? when was he living? This is a uh, late 17, early 1800s. Okay. Um, and it's like the, the heyday of French haute cuisine, mm. like when it was really becoming the biggest cuisine in the world, that's when he was around. And so he, he's, this quote is my favorite quote from him. And I actually heard it for the first time when I was taking my, um, sommelier introductory sommelier certification oh, forever ago now nine <laughs> years ago heard the quote and it stuck with me for years and it says to receive guests is to take charge of their happiness the entire time they're under your roof um and it just i heard it one time and i never forgot it like it stuck with me and then years later actually the week before we opened this restaurant i got it tattooed on me as like a reminder um because it's very easy in this business to start to get an us versus them mentality, like against the guests. It's a terrible truth, mm -hmm. but like, it's very easy to be like, God, these people are idiots. Like, like, what do y'all like? I don't like you start to get upset at people because look, people are people and you're right. dealing with the public and you're dealing with the public 
in a very personal space, yeah, right? Like table, yeah. this is like, this is my whole life and my heart put onto a plate in front of you. And like some people aren't going to like what you did mm. and they're going to say that. And sometimes you mess up and they shouldn't have liked what you done uh, or what you did. And they, you know, or maybe, you know, whatever. There's so many different things that can go into making it where either they don't enjoy their experience or, you know, maybe they just had a really bad day mm. and they come in and maybe the hostess or the host at the front door, um, you know, didn't maybe come off the nicest because they're in the weeds mm-hmm. and they've been stressed out. And the person walks in and their kids were fighting in the car and, you know, their husband is late for whatever. And they're already on edge and they walk in and then they have a bad interaction. And the next thing you know, they're they're on Google. in a bad mood. They're on well, Google, they're in a bad a mood. one star. <laughs> well, they're in a bad mood when they sit down. And then the best case scenario is you figure that out Mm-hmm. And you have the humility and wherewithal to turn their night around, right? Like we want this to be a place where somebody can be having a shitty day and they come here and now it's a better day. Not, man, everything sucks. I'm in a bad mood. I get to Maribo and then the server was an asshole. The manager was a was a dick. Yeah. You know, the, the food wasn't any good. And now I'm writing a one star review yeah. and they're not going to talk about how bad their day was first because they're not thinking about that. Mm-hmm. They're just thinking about how the end result was like, you know, I didn't like this. And, you know, as a everything, like every step of that is important, right? The hostess may have been able to say, welcome Maribo. I love your earrings. Mm-hmm. And a lady, boom, this is a different experience. Yeah. Or, you know, oh my gosh, your kids are so cute. And it's uh reminds the lady that, yeah, they're little shitheads, but they're my kids and they're really cute. Yeah. You know? And then when the <clears throat> server greets the table, you know, they greet them in a timely fashion and they're right. And then this, the busser immediately has some nice ice cold water for them. And the lady takes a sip of water and she's like, oh man, I'm, let me just decompress a little bit. Yeah. And then, settle in. you know, and then if we do it all the right way, you can have the complete opposite reaction where that person went from, looking for something wrong to by the time they leave, they're like a raving fan. Mm -hmm. Like, man, I came in here and they're not even thinking about that either, but they know they left in a great mood Mm -hmm. and they really enjoyed everything. And man, the server was so attentive and the hostess was so complimentary and the chef came out and talked to us and the bartender, man, the drinks were perfect, you know, whatever. And um, so if you, it's, you have to constantly remind yourself to have that mentality because, you know, it, in a perfect world, people come in, they want to be here, mm-hmm. they're excited to be here, and then we knock it out the park, and that happens most of the time. Mm-hmm. Somebody comes here because they made a reservation, they chose to come here, ideally they had a pretty good day before they got here, and it's all smooth. And as long as we execute, you know, even like an eight or nine out of 10, probably be pretty solid. Mm-hmm. So, um, so what's the, so you've got the quote on your arm and you've got the, I mean, you've got your mind in, in your mind, you've got the perfect experience created. How do you actually practically bre- break that down to the people that work here? Like from the cooks that are cooking your recipes to the hostess, what's, what's like the actual tenets of the, so restaurant? a lot of that, a lot of that is, um, there's a lot of training involved. There's a lot of manuals you know, like there's hostess manuals here. There's busser manuals here. There's server manuals here. Did you, how did, did you like come up with all that? Did so, you write it all? I mean, it's it? all, 
it's all whoever wrote the first service manual is owed a debt of gratitude because <laughs> every person that came from that spot after has yeah. morphed it or stolen it in some way, right? Mine are a combination of things from every <laughs> restaurant I've worked at plus like our general manager of the restaurants she's worked at and her thoughts on stuff. And then we all talk about the, that. And plus the the Bobby Flay's restaurant experience. Yeah, and I'm that sure. restaurant experience. Yeah. You know? And then there's a guy named Danny Meyer um, most people know Shake Shack, the burger yep. chain. So he started that, but he all more, more so than that. He started Union Square Hospitality Group in New York City years ago. He has a book called Setting the Table, and it's kind of like the Bible for hospitality mm -hmm. in this business. Okay. Um, every manager that has ever worked for me in this business has gotten a copy of that given to them um, or worked with me. I think it's brilliant. Um, it kind of tells his story and also his philosophy and it kind of th turns the thing upside down a little bit. And it, it, and it's something that has been come up a, a lot recently, but like employee wellness is kind of one of like, it's employees first. Like it's, he calls it, um, called like top down hospitality. I forget exactly the words he uses, but hospitality to your employees first and you treat them right and you treat them with respect. And then, then the guests then the community, which mm -hmm. is a huge deal for him. Mm -hmm. Then then your purveyors, the people you buy all your stuff from. And then lastly, your investors. And your investors need to know that from the beginning. Yeah. Like your last priority. Yeah. You know, you're gonna get paid back, but but we're not gonna we're not gonna sacrifice any of these other things for you. You don't want the short buck to pay him back. No. You gotta build the and, experience. You know, to be fair, short Danny Meyer now has opened beside outside of Shake Shack. I think around 30 restaurants, wow. almost all in New York City, a few outside of it. I think they ever closed one, wow. which is nuts, crazy track record. And the one they closed was an Indian restaurant right after 9-11. Mm. Um, and it was just like this huge wave of anti anyone brown in America. Mm -hmm. And it was like Indian food was the same thing as Muslim food mm -hmm. terrorist. Yeah. You know, they went from doing... 300 covers a night to doing like two tables a night overnight. Wow. You know? And so they closed and, um, but I think that's legitimate. That might be his only restaurant I've ever heard of him having to close. Um, and so his, you know, if it was just some guy writing that book, you'd be like, this is interesting, but you know, prove it. Right. Well, when, when it's him writing it, arguably mm -hmm. the most successful American restaurant tour of all time, if you factor in Shake Shack, um, and even if you don't, the most successful New York restaurant tour of all time, mm -hmm. um, it carries a lot of weight. Mm -hmm. And so I, I saw that. And then I also came up. So I've worked for some people that were really excellent at their jobs and terrible to their employees and kind of vice versa. People that were the employees all loved them, but they didn't know anything about a profit and loss statement or a budget. Mm. And you have to find a balance. Um, you know, it's important that your employees don't hate their job. You know, I worked for a guy that was an excellent operator as a restaurateur, but I hated working for him. Mm -hmm. I hated going to work, but I knew that I was learning. And so I just put up with it until I couldn't at one point and then eventually quit. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people that worked for him, it ended the same way. Is he you still know? running a restaurant? He is. He is. And he isn't. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, no, he is, but, uh, but he's no longer, you know, he, he got 
booted out of the place he was at for a long time okay. eventually because of his behavior and things like that. Yeah. And um, he's still at a spot, but it's a much smaller spot. And we don't have to know. harp on the yeah. on the bad guy. I'm just curious but, if he. But you know, I I remember talking to his supervisor about like, man, like I just I can't stand working for him anymore. I'm ready to quit. And he was like, look, you know, you can learn a lot from somebody. You can learn how to act and also how not to act. Yeah. And so, like, for me at that point, I was like, all right, I'll stay a little longer and I'm going to try to have that mindset, too. Um, you know, and I did. I mean, there's cert- I've learned a lot of lessons on how not to interact with people from him, but also how to interact like great with guests. Every guest felt like they're the most important person there. Mm. But then employees all like, you know, hated to be so there. What's that, so speaking of employees, because clearly employees are a huge part, even more so than the guest. What's uh, how do you pick the right employees for for what you need to accomplish? So that's how do you build your team? That's a long process. Um, You know, you're going to go through people. um, You know, I've gotten better over time at asking the right questions and interviews and stuff and being more transparent with people. Trying to get the information up front, trying to see who they really are type thing. And so in the kitchen, we do what's called a stage. And a stage is a French word, and it's basically a tryout. Um, In France, they would typically be very long and they would be free. You're going to work here for a month if you're wow. if you're good at it. You can and a lot stay. and a look, a lot of high-end like Michelin level restaurants in America still utilize systems like that where they have stages that are working for free and it's kind of one of the only ways some of those places can truly be profitable because mm. they've got 10 cooks working for free at any given time. They can that's the only way they even though they're charging $100 an entree. Well, here's the deal. Let's say you're at um let's say you're at um, Robichon in Las Vegas, three Michelin stars. I'll use that one because I've been, we were there one night. I asked the Mater D, I said, how many guests are y'all going to feed tonight? So we're going to do 120 covers. That's their max. That's all they ever do is what he was telling me. I don't know if that's the case, but that's what he was telling me. And I asked him how many cooks are working tonight. It's 48 cooks working tonight. 48 cooks. So one cook. What the well, two two cooks. I'm sorry, one cook for every two guests. Now that's broken into wow. divisions. There's sauciers. Yeah. There's guys doing all this, but that's their everyday deal. And that morning before they open, they only open for dinner. But that morning at 4 a.m., the pastry team of eight pastry chefs arrived and prepared all the desserts and that's breads crazy. and chocolates and all that for the day. Um, so labor is unbelievable. What's but the why? Why though? What I mean? Why do they need so many? That level of so there's there's a totally different and I, I'm I'm pretty that level of execution you have to see it to understand it. Yeah. Cause I do not understand. So it. <laughs> like here's the thing. That was an outlandishly expensive meal. It was fascinating. It was unbel it was mind blowing. It was an experience. Okay. Right. And I'm like, man, the attention to detail, the amount of technique involved, mm-hmm. the amount of time it takes. Like I know. I'm like to, the amount of time it takes to do that is staggering and the fact that they're doing it is mind-blowing okay does it translate to being the most delicious meal i've ever had no it's almost it's at that level it's almost like art it's subjective Mm -hmm. um to this day the best meal i've ever eaten and it was like a life-changing experience this was one of my questions yeah best meal i've ever had and it hasn't changed and it was a long time ago um i left the job that i said i quit and i decided i was going to take the whole summer off and i was going to just relax and i was going to do whatever i wanted to do and i had friends at the time one had moved 
to Denver, one had moved to LA, one was living in Scottsdale and had family around Texas I wanted to visit. So I was like, I'm gonna take a road trip across the whole country and I'm gonna visit all my friends and I'm gonna eat at some places and whatever. So I took off, um, was in Denver for about a week, ate some fantastic like New Mexico style food, which is like a blend of Mexican and Native American. It's awesome, like fantastic, really great stuff. Um, this same trip actually ate like the third best meal of my life. And it's at a, so it's very, I'll give you the first and then I'll go back to the I best because the, the, the dichotomy is interesting. So then I'm going to visit my buddy. I know I'm going to be a buddy in LA and I'm like, man, there's this restaurant called Urasawa. Um, it's a Japanese restaurant. It's sushi. It's, uh, it's omakase only, which omakase means that you don't order. The chef prepares a set menu every day. Nice. This is what you get. Love right. That. And it is a 14 seat restaurant. Wow. It's eight seats at the sushi bar and a six top, sorry, 10 seats at the sushi bar and a six top, 16 seat restaurant. They do two seatings a day. They do like a six o'clock and a nine o'clock seating or a six and an eight thirty, something like that. Mm-hmm. And you have to make reservations way in advance. I'm sure. Yeah. It's at the time, $495 a person. Wow. I'm like, I'm putting this on a credit card. <laughs> I don't care. I don't have the money to eat there, but yeah. I don't care. But I'm like, I didn't even think I was gonna get a reservation. I call, I'm only in LA for like four days. I'm like, do you have any reservations for this day, this day, this day, or this day? And they're like, actually, and they're normally booked months in advance. I decide I'm going on this trip like three weeks before, I, before I'm getting to LA. And they're like, we actually just had a cancellation this afternoon. We have two seats available at the early seating on this Tuesday, whatever. So wow. I'm like, all right, my whole trip, I'm like, all I know is I have to be there mm-hmm. on that Tuesday. Uh-huh. Everything else is that kind of up in the air. I don't really care about anything else. I call my buddy who I'm going to be staying on his couch in LA. And I'm like, Hey, will you go to Urasaw with me? And he's like, man, I haven't had a job for two months. The job market's <laughs> rough out here. He's like, he's like, but, um, I'll go with you if you'll buy. Yeah. Oh, he's like, I he's like, no, he's like, you have to go alone. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to do this experience alone. And he's a big food guy. And I'm, he was a bartender that worked with me for a long time. He's got a fascinating life story and just a really cool dude. So I'm like, John, tell you what, I'm going to be sleeping on your couch for three or four days. I'll pay for your meal. I got to share it with somebody, Mm -hmm. you know? And, um, so he says, okay. So I call the place back. I'm like, all right, I'm in, put me down. Here's my card number. They take your card number for the reservation and make it there. Barely make it there. Made I was supposed to be there three days earlier. My truck went down in Colorado, had to get it fixed. Like then take off back across fly through Vegas just to say I went to Vegas, <laughs> went into Caesar's Palace, played two hands of blackjack, won like a hundred bucks. I was like, hey, all right, nice. I won Vegas. This is at five in the morning. Get back out. Um, That's what you got to do. You got to get in make some money and leave. You got to get out. <laughs> it didn't do so good the next time I went. Um, but meet John. It's morning time. And I'm like, dude, I've been driving all night long. I got to <laughs> sleep for a few hours before we go. So you arrived the morning of. I arrived the morning of, and wow. I was supposed to be there a few days, and I'm like yeah. stressing out. I'm like, man, I gotta make it. Like yeah. they're charging my card no There's matter $1, what. thousand dollars. They're on the charging line. my card no matter what, <laughs> and I gotta experience this. So we get there. Um, it's on Rodeo Drive. It's this little bitty spot, and I'll. The restaurant is named Urasawa. It's named after the chef. That's mm-hmm. his name. Um, previously, um, it had been his mentor's restaurant, a guy named um, Masa, and that's his family name. Masa moved to New York to open Masa in New York at the top of, I forget which building, but he opened across the hall from Thomas Keller, 
Thomas Carroll's opening per se in New York, which per se is the first or second most expensive restaurant in America. Wow. Um, Thomas Keller was opening per se. They He originally owned a restaurant called the French Laundry in California. Heard of that. Which is an iconic American yeah. restaurant. Yeah. And the people that were developing this massive complex in New York were like, we want you to come open per se. And there's going to be another restaurant across the hall. And Thomas Keller said, I'm only doing it if I get to pick who else goes across the hall for me. Because mm. he's a baller like that. He can say that. Mm-hmm. And he asked Masa to come do that. So Masa left his 14, 16-seat restaurant and opened a much larger restaurant across the hall from per se in New York. And when he left, his apprentice took over. Mm. His apprentice had been his apprentice for 25 years. It's yeah, not Lee. like yeah. sushi chefs are like... Is that common? Yes. Okay. In the bet at the very high level, right? In the Japan level kind of stuff. Um, To go off topic, but very on topic, the Japanese culture, and it's like this in other parts of Asia as well, but it's very foreign to Western culture Mm. of they will do one thing for generations and find fulfillment in that, right? Mm. My... um, you know, my father made sushi. His father made sushi. Well, sushi is kind of new. So let's say my father was a knife maker. Mm. There are 12th generation knife ma- knife making families in Japan today mm. that can trace their lineage. They were making samurai swords for emperors, wow. a th- you know, 800 years ago. And they're still doing that today. It's like that in a lot of things. And, you know, it's the, the thoughts on filial piety, like, what my parents think about me is very important to me, mm. you know, in America, it's like, you know, we'll see a very rarely like a third generation something. Yeah. And we're like, whoa, yeah, it's crazy. That's super <laughs> normal back there. Really? And so if you think about think about, um, you know, if you decided that you were going to do one thing your entire life. Yeah, I would die. Well, like you would be, you would die. Me. Or you'd be excellent at it. Right. You would be so good. And what if you did that stuff for 800 years? Yeah. Every day for 800 years. And you also, because of the mentality you have, you strive for perfection Mm. in everything that you do. So you're talking about these people that are super committed to making sushi. And so, um, and they're only, you know, like, that's all they want to do ever. They wake up and these guys work hard. Mm-hmm. Like this restaurant is two scenes a night. Chef gets there at six in the morning. Wow. He leaves at midnight. Wow. Five days a week, six to midnight. When he gets, when part of his day is him talking to his buyers in on the coast and in Japan, talking about, hey, what's the best stuff? All right, buy that. Send me this much of it. Part of it is prepping and all this. In this restaurant, it's, the chef, his apprentice, who's been with him for a long time. He mm. was also one of Masa's apprentices, but way further down the line. And there's his sister, who is like the front of house. She's pouring water and beer and sake if you order that. And then there's two guys in the back that are just like prep cooks. And when I say just prep cooks, those two guys are more skilled at what they do than 90% of other <laughs> chefs in, in the world. Really? Like it's a, it's high level. And like you talk about like, how can you tell a chef's good? Like Japanese chefs in particular, their knife skills are unbelievable. Um, you know, just the technique. Yeah. Um, 
And then, so we sit down at this restaurant, we walk in and it's just the beaded kind of curtain. And they say, Mr. Job. And I'm like, this is wild. Like, yes, I guess. <laughs> How do you know that's me? But yeah, um, sit down, we're seated at the end of the sushi bar. Uh, it's me and my buddy, John, and they hand us a wine list. Um, she says, uh, there's no liquor served here. Um, we only serve sake and we serve white wine. Chef doesn't believe that any other wines or liquors pair with his food. Mm. And he also serves beer, right? So we're like, no, it doesn't serve beer. So, and there's only bottled water because he's like, we only use this certain bottled water from Japan. Wow. And, and then, so I'm like, all right, cool. Bottles of water, like 12 bucks a pop. I'm like, all right, we'll get two of those to start or one of those to start. And they pour it. And, you know, you're in front of you is just like at most sushi bars, like a display case. But I'm seeing stuff that's like, I'm like, that's unbelievable. Like, I've never seen half of this stuff. Is it like the like the, the way they're working? No, like the, the, equi- product, the equipment, the product oh, the to product. start out. OK, you know, you see this fish and stuff. Just and I'm ex- like, it, like beautiful, wow. like quality. And you're like, this is like I'm like, this is nuts. Like, mm. this is the most beautiful and that's where it starts. It starts with product quality, right? The price is that expensive, partially because you're paying for the chef's skill. Mm-hmm. You're also paying for the fact that this place is on Rodeo Drive. But you're also paying for the fact that, like, some of this stuff was swimming in Japan yesterday. Dang. And freshness, freshness isn't always best when it comes to sushi. Like, sometimes it's just like we age beef. Like, mm-hmm. you can also age certain fish certain ways and things like that. Um but this guy's not skimping on the best stuff. If it's better to get it from Boston, he's getting it from Boston. If it's better to get it from Santa Barbara, 20 minutes away, mm-hmm. he's getting it from Santa Barbara. Um, and so then starts off this, it's 18 courses. 18 courses. But you're talking between one and four bites. Okay. There, you know, and It's all sushi based though. All, so sushi is, it is basically just means rice in real life, right? It means okay. like with rice. Okay. We have the impression that it's fish and all that. Right. That's my impression. The focus is rice in Japan. So the most classic sushi is uh, is nigiri. And that is like the little oval-shaped ball of rice with fish laid over the top. Okay. That's nigiri. Sashimi is just the raw fish on its own. Okay. I knew, that, I knew got, that much. <laughs> then you have like different styles of nigiri. Um, and then you have like shirashi, which is like a bowl of rice with fish over it. And then you've got... A bunch of other things. And then there's just other Japanese style cuisine. And this guy is kind of known for mixing it up a little bit. It's not classic like Japanese sushi in the sense that it's very rigid. He kind of breaks a few of the rules. So, Um, so, so with 18, this is obviously like the, one of the experience, I mean, unbelievable experience, but with 18 courses and somewhat of a, you could classify it as niche um, food product. I mean, like what's he bringing, what's he trying to give you in 18 courses over small little bites? Like, so there's going to, there's kind of broken into sections. So we start out with like a couple little salads of sort. And it's hard for me to even say like that. Yeah. I can't describe all of it. You know, I was like gushing over the whole experience and in my head, I told myself this whole time, I'm like, look, this is my first like high end dining experience, like high, high end. And I'm like, you know, like, don't 
buy into the hype if it's not that good. Right. Like be stay grounded. Be legit. Is like, it le- yeah. Is it be good? a legitimate judge right. of the quality of this. Don't get and, carried away. Yeah. And you know, I take the first bite. We both take the first bite, and we look at each other, and we like <laughs> giggle like schoolgirls. You know, awesome. I was like, oh my god, like, is this for real? <laughs> like, and he started. Look, and the, the chefs, this guy's knows what he's doing. He knows he's starting you off on a bite. And, you know, and like it's him and his apprentice behind the counter and that's it. And like they had a cancellation next to us. So it's us two at the bar and then four other people and then the six top on the far side. Um, and we're just like looking the chef, like looking at the chef and I'm like the biggest <laughs> smile ever. And he looks and he just like he doesn't let on to much. He like a little nod smile. Yeah. Like, you know, like he knows he's, he knows what he's doing. Like he, he doesn't have to get excited when yeah. he knows we're excited. Like he's been here before. Yeah. He knows he's good at this. And um, what was it? All right. Just little aside. Fl- flip rolls. You're you've been doing this forever and you're preparing something, you know, is just unbelievable. And you've done it a million times. And then you look up and somebody's smiling, has a huge grin on their face. What would you feel? It feels great. Right. Oh, it's a fantastic feeling. So he was, he was just kind of hiding it a little. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like he's hiding it. Yeah. But he's but it's like the whole like act like you've been here before. Yeah. You know, like you win a basketball game. Like, you know, you can celebrate, yeah. but like, act like you've been here. Have a little class, right, you know, like, right. so it's when somebody tells me something's awesome, as much as I want to be like, I know, thank you so much. It feels, <laughs> you're like, thanks a lot. I appreciate that. You know, we try really hard. We got a great, we got a great team, you know, like you got to give mm-hmm. credit where credit's due and all that, but it does still feel amazing. Mm-hmm. Especially like some people are like, really like, oh man, like this is just so good. And especially when they get it too, they're like, man, like this is really like, thoughtful or like they get the the like man like this is just a fantastic dish like you can tell all the the nuance and this and that Mm -hmm. and when you really put that into the dish and then somebody appreciates all of it Mm -hmm. that's great you know um i tell people a lot like i love when people use profanity to describe how good (laughs) something is um you know like i had an older lady probably in her like 60s one time she was like, fuck, that's delicious. Like at the table. And like, it was like one of the highest compliment. I was like, I don't think you, and she was dressed very nicely. You know, I was like, she was a classy Southern lady, classy Southern lady. Dropping the F. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, man, you have no idea how much I appreciate it. She was like, I'm sorry for my language. I was like, trust me, that's as high as a compliment is like, you know, I love that. Yeah. Um, so we go through this whole meal and every, you know, you start with that and there's, and he does like a little roll, but a roll there is not like, it's not all how we it's do not it. Anything There's no I've mayonnaise. Had. There's no crab sticks. Yeah. You know, it's like this, this, I think his was simply rice, real wasabi, which you've probably never eaten. Mm-hmm. Most wasabi we eat is horseradish, um, just dyed green. Um, and then fatty tuna, which is delicious. And then like, there's not even like soy sauce. Like if they want you to have soy sauce, they'll brush it with soy sauce. Or, mm. you know, if they want you to have a certain sauce on something, it's brushed with that before it's given to you. Mm. Um, I can appreciate it. I because, can definitely like, appreciate it. Because like they know better, yeah. right? Like they, they you can you up. dunk this right. in soy sauce. What's it going to taste like? Soy sauce. Right. Also like they make their own soy sauce there. It's a three year process. This is wow. not like, you know, they're not buying like Kikoman off the mm. shelf at the, at the restaurant supply store. Um, everything is just super intense. And then, so then we get into nigiri and the nigiri it's handed to you one piece at a time. And we try like seven different types of fish and they go through like a flavor and texture spectrum. So like the Jap in America, we're not huge on textures and food. Mm -hmm. We like crunchy Mm -hmm. and that's about it. 
and we like we like like but like in other parts of the world chewy's cool and like slimy's cool in some places Mm -hmm. not so much most places but a few um and like fish textures are very different so he's like look this is the same fish it's just from two different parts of it try this oh wow and not only do they taste different because there's different fat content um you know it's like a pork chop and pork belly it tastes different, right? You mm-hmm. don't think about that as much with fish, but it's a thing. There's different muscle groups and different parts of muscle fiber. So he feeds us this, and we're every and we're just like blo- I'm blown away after blown away, just mind blowing experience. The attention to detail. They serve a sashimi course, and it's served on like this hand carved ice plate, and they carve made out of ice. they carve one for every guest that's coming in each night. Wow. And when they're done with it, it just goes in the trash. Wow. Right. So it's made out of ice and it's not like they start with a block of ice and then they carve it and they put them in their freezer again. <laughs> they have 14 guests. They have 28 guests that night. They carve 28 of these. Wow. And then it goes in the trash because I ate off of it. Right. And so and but on this thing, they have this beautiful like little flower arrangement that they're also doing. And so that the, the apprentice is about to serve us both of ours and he's putting it over the thing to hand it. And the master looks over and sees it and like stops him, mm-hmm. comes over and just starts like ripping this guy quietly in a very Japanese quiet way. But you can tell he's like very upset with him. Uh-huh. In, and he like in Japanese or in English? In Japanese. Okay. But like but like whispering. Yeah. And then he like picks up the fly arrangement and almost imperceptibly shifts it. Wow. And then like hands it back. And I was like, we were like, oh my <laughs> God. Like I look at John, he looks at me, and I was like, I think the guy almost really screwed that up, but it looks like he didn't change hardly anything. <laughs> That's amazing. And so he puts it across and you're like the attention to detail and like his his want for perfection mm-hmm. at every part of it. And then, you know, they start the, the meal finishes, we're almost done. And I'm like, and this is, you know, I'm like, can I, the rice is crazy, right? He's, I've, I'm from South Louisiana. I ate rice with every meal mm-hmm. almost my whole life. And I'm like, I take the first bite of something that has rice. And I was like, whoa, that's not rice. That's weird. That's better than rice. That is rice, but it's unlike any rice I've ever had. And so I'm like, can I just get a little bit of bowl of that rice? Like, I want to try it without anything else. So he hands me a little bowl of rice and it's still warm. And I take a bite of it and I'm just like, like that bite forever changed everything. Wow. I was like, there's levels to this, right? Like rice. there's levels to, to this whole thing. Right. That rice is as good as any bite of food I've ever eaten in my life. Me, I mean that, and not just because it's rice and wow, it's that good. I was like, this is legitimately one of the best things I've ever put in my mouth, and it's a bowl of rice that's seasoned with like vinegar that they make there and some salt from Japan, whatever. But I was like, whoa, well, you I know, mean, like what, it, like what it tastes like. I can't, you can't describe. It's it. just imagine. I mean, it tasted like rice, but like, but like the rice most ultimate. Yeah, like rice on experience. steroids. Okay, you know, but like just crate like like most rice we eat doesn't taste like much. This rice was like, I took a bite and I was like, holy shit, is that what rice, is that what rice tastes like? Maybe that's why they eat so much rice in Japan. So if it tastes anything like this, I'd want to eat it all the time too. Wow. You know? Mm. And for me, so that meal wraps up and I walk out and I'm like, we're standing on the street and I was just like, holy shit, that was unbelievable. Like that was unbelievable. I was like, totally worth every dollar I spent. Mm. Bill ends up being you know, like $1,400 by the time wow. tax and tip and all that. And we drank water and like split a beer. Cause wow. you know, and I was like, 
totally worth it. I'll be paying that off the whole next year of my life. <laughs> you know, like a hundred bucks a month till it's paid off. And when this, when I started my trip, I drove to visit my grandparents in Texas, and then I drove through Austin, and I went north of Austin to a town called Lockhart, Texas, and it is basically like the barbecue capital of yeah. Texas. And Texas barbecue is beef based. Um, and there, there's a, a, a spot in that town called Black's Barbecue. It's been open, run by the same family since 1908, 1910, something like that. Um, it's you walk up, there's sides, you tell them what sides you want. It's almost like Piccadilly. You get to the meat counter and you order meat and it's all done by like weight. So you say like, give me a half pound of the brisket. And like, you want lean brisket or fatty brisket? You want fatty brisket for sure. <laughs> and you want sausage, you've got original and garlic. You want beef ribs, chicken. They don't offer a bunch of stuff. There's four or five things. And you go, all right, cool. And I want a drink um, until like, the 70s or 80s they didn't even have sauce they didn't have it you ask for sauce for like get out of here like no we don't have that here wow they eventually did that and you walk out the dining room there's a fountain drink machine there's big bins of white bread and then pickles and onions and i sit down by myself i heard about this place i sit down and have what still to this day is the third best meal of my life and i was just blown i took a bite and i thought i made a pretty good brisket before that and I took the first bite of that and I was like depressed immediately. <laughs> I was like, man, my brisket is terrible <laughs> compared to this. And I didn't cook a brisket again for at least two years. Really? Because wow. I was like, it's not It's not worth good. it. It's, yeah, not, it's good. not worth it. Like yeah. my standard is now here. So like if I eat mine, I'm going to hate it. Yeah. You know, like, and I, and I, it, brisket's kind of expensive for me to mess up. Like I eat it now. I'm like, God, like it was just so like that, that meal what's changed. The of, what's the name of that place? It's called Black's Barbecue. Black's Barbecue. In okay. Lockhart, Texas. It's okay. fantastic. And this was, was this a $1,200? This was, you know, $20? 30 bucks. Because okay, yeah. I ordered like way too much food. Um, I ordered like enough for two or three people. Nice. And, and the experience was, it's like a sticky vinyl red and white yep. tablecloth. Okay. You know, like there's no servers. Um, it's, this old wooden building with like kitschy signs and pictures of people in it and third best meal of my life still, because it also was like transformative in the sense I was like, this is so good. And I walk back up and I'm like the guys that are working the pit, you know, I'm like, how long has that guy been working there? Like 30 years, God. Like the lady working the register. It's like her, her grandfather opened the place wow. and you know, her great grandfather opened the place and like the same amount of care and love and also like expertise. Like that guy working the pit has been up for 30 years, just mm -hmm. like this sushi guy's been doing this for 30 years. Mm -hmm. It's just different. One guy's doing this, one guy's doing this. If this Texas guy wanted to make sushi and had the same dedication he's had to this, it would be probably just as good, mm -hmm. you know, or vice versa. This Japanese guy devoted 30 years of his life to doing barbecue. You know, it's yeah. the same kind of thing. Maybe he would do fish barbecue. Maybe so. <laughs> and so for me, like an amazing meal or dining experience is very much about, it's just about like people say like, Oh, what do you taste the love? It's the care. It's the devotion mm -hmm. you put into it. You can make technically very good food and give people a, a great food experience. And it'd be a very cold and unwelcoming place, which like, I'll say like Robichon, I felt like they didn't want me to be there. Mm -hmm. Like I was kind of in the way, like, we didn't laugh out loud the whole meal, even though we said funny stuff. We felt like it was too, there was a lot of pretense. 
you know, like you're in a very special place. Like it, you're, it's a privilege for you to be here I am. as opposed to, it's a privilege for us to have you here, mm -hmm. which is like, you know, like if you invite someone into your home, they're your guests, like it's, which happens way less now than it did when we were kids. Like how often do people have company now versus right, when you yeah. were younger, yeah. but like you invite somebody into your home, like your mom busted out the nicer stuff. There was no paper plates on the table. And it's because like, we wanted to make you feel welcome and feel good. And we were also cooking like really good food and whatever. That attitude of hospitality is the most important part of this business, right? Like I love Waffle House. I love it. I loved it because as a kid, it was an open kitchen. You had to see cooks cook. Mm, yeah. There's no open kitchens weren't a thing when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Waffle House was the only open kitchen I'd ever seen. And you're seeing people cook in front of you. And I loved, I love cooking. I love watching them. Like, man, look at that guy just cooking eggs and flipping burgers and all this stuff is fascinating. And I've had dining experience at Waffle House where the lady is the sweetest, nicest lady ever. And she's like, how you doing today, darling? And blah, blah, blah. And you have a great experience. And, you know, where the bill is 12 bucks. And, you know, for me and my sister to eat at Robichon, the bill was, you know, over a thousand dollars. And I felt, I walked out like I could have not done that. It was a fascinating experience, but I, like I didn't feel welcome. Mm. And that's like a travesty, right? This, this was the, which one was the, it's the one in Vegas, Robichon in Vegas. Okay, got it. Um, and it's three Michelin stars, you know, and, and it's very much like a Joel Robichon died this past year. He's the most iconic chef of the entire 20th century. Hmm. Upon his death, he had 32 Michelin stars that wow. he held concurrently around the world. The set number two guy in the world was like 12, yeah. something like that, right? Wow. And even that's nuts. Like Gordon Ramsay's got like maybe seven or eight, yeah. and that's like a crazy staggering amount. Um, this guy at 32 at That's one time, insane. never lost one after he got it, which is all you can, wow. they, it's a reevaluation every right. year. They can take, yeah. take it away. Um, and just crazy. And I mean, he's obviously not cooking all these places, but it's, right. it's a, a note to the, like the legacy he's built. The people that are working for him are all the best in the world at mm -hmm. what they do. All 48 of the yeah. cooks. Yeah. <laughs> all, you know, and, and at every restaurant, yeah. it's similar to that. And, um, you so know, what's the, so what's the, I mean, so the first sushi um, meal that you had was, uh, by the way, I've been like not letting you drink here. No, that's all right. So, um, we, so the first meal, the best meal that you've ever had was the sushi restaurant. The third was the barbecue place. What's it before we go to the second one? What's like, why are, that's like polar opposite meals in experience and in the food. What's like the common, we've established that they both did it for 30 years plus. It's just, it the, it's the, it's first of all, it's the, the, for the food part of it for me is huge. Like the quality of the food, the like, taste foremost, right? Mm -hmm. There wasn't a single bite of food I ate at either place where I wasn't like, this is good until I was like, the barbecue place will be for like the last few bites when I was like hating <laughs> Stuffed, myself yeah. for still eating, weren't as good. The American style, yeah. But, you know, like, like at Robichon, there was a few bites that I was blown away by the flavor and taste, but a like, but out of, and that was also like a 17 course deal, mm. probably four or five courses. I was like, that's one of the best things I've ever eaten. But the other 12 were like, yeah, I could, it's good. Yeah. It's good. I don't know if it's this good, like for all this and yeah. all the money. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing too. Like we talked about earlier, like the white tablecloth, when I'm paying you 600 bucks better be all perfect mm. and all delicious mm. and all amazing. If you don't have 
that bill and you don't have the white tablecloth, you don't have the server in the tuxedo, you lower the expectation a little and you make it more comfortable for everybody. Like there's no mute, there's like there's music playing at Robichon, but it's very quiet and it's like classical music mm. and it's, you know, whereas at, it's like a it's like a movie at restaurant barbecue, dining. you know, they're playing like old country music and there's yeah. people walking around and people are, hey, Jim, how you been? And it's this atmosphere that's friendly and comfortable, um, you know, so the best meals for me, it's there's intangibles to it. Right. How do you feel when you're there? Mm-hmm. You know, at the at Urasawa, I felt a sense of reverence and it was special to be there just like I did at Robichon, but they didn't do that to me. They didn't make me feel like that. I just felt like that because of how great it all was. Mm -hmm. Like, I was like, this place is so amazing. I feel honored to be here. And then at Robichon, they're like, this place is so amazing. You should feel honored to be here. (laughs) And I think that's part of it. Mm -hmm. You know, like, how do you feel? I mean, so there's two definitions that we go by in the industry of service is the technical delivery of a product. Is your drink cold? Did it get there in time? Did your food taste good? Um, was your table clean? That's service. And then hospitality is, how do you feel while you're here, mm. right? Both are a requirement for um, people to come back and people to enjoy their time. I will go, me personally, I'm much more food driven. I'll go, Somebody could be an asshole to me. And if the food and stuff is perfect, I'll probably still go back. Mm. Um, most people are not like that. Most people would rather have okay food and a fantastic mm-hmm. feeling, um, you know, and that's, so I think that's it. There's intangibles though too. Like there's the, how you feel is like, it's everything, the decor, the ambiance, the people working there, you know, like when you walk up to the counter and the but and the guy cutting the meat is like, what do you be having son? <laughs> you know, or like, you know, what do you be having, big man? You know, ask you a question and it's just, you already disarmed. There's no, like, I'm kind of nervous. Cause like, I've heard about this place for years too. And I'm like, I don't I'm like, he's like, well, you got to get brisket. I'm like, yeah, I want brisket. He's like, you want fatty or lean? I'm like, I definitely want fatty. He goes, that's damn right. You do. You know? And then what kind of sausage you want? I'm like, can they're look, they're moving through a ton of people. So they're moving you along, but they're also like helping you out. And then yeah. you get to the lady and I'm like, she's like, she's like, well, son, you look pretty hungry today, huh? I have like two trays of food for just me, you know? And I'm like, I was just trying to get everything. She's like, well, I think you got it covered, you know? Come back and get some peach cobbler afterward, you know? Nice. And it's just this, that, you yeah. know, it's intangibles. Like, you can't teach that. That lady's great-grandfather started this place. She genuinely cares. She's not faking it. And, and people, more than people give people credit for, see genuineness in people. Mm-hmm. Can tell when someone's being genuine. It feels different. Mm-hmm. You can fake it to some extent, you know, you having a bad day, you can come in and still put a smile on your face, but like you can't fake caring for long, mm-hmm. you know, like I genuinely care that you have a great experience while you're at our restaurant because that's what I am here to do. That's what we're trying to cultivate, mm-hmm. you know? So like if you have a bad experience, like when I get pissed off, like if we we mess something up, we send out a bad plate of food or something that's wrong or server forgets to greet a guest and the guest sits there for 10 minutes without getting greeted. I'm angry, not because they're going to write a bad Yelp review or whatever, but like, man, like we're really letting these people down. Like they're coming in, giving us their money and their time. There's a million other choices they could be at and we're not doing what we're supposed to do. That's just so disappointing 
You know, mm-hmm. like, man, like we're better than that. Like we're better than that. Why are we, this person is having a bad time now and we got, we invited them here to have a good time and you just, it's super disappointing and you get, you know, like, like that's tough. And if you, but if you don't have that mentality, if you're like, ah, take them or leave them, mm-hmm. you know, like you're not going to, not going to cultivate anything. No. And so that's top down for the staff. Like when you talk about how do you get that to your staff, you, they have to see it. You have to see your, like, that you care. And, you know, they have to see, it have to be constantly told, there, you know, there's manuals, there's that, there's, um, you know, them learning this stuff too. You know, we have a we have a kid that's been working for us. We've been doing three and a half years. We hired him day one, mm-hmm. you know. He's been a server, uh, washed dishes. He's been a cook. Um, you know, and a bartender and he's, you know, he was 18 when he started here. He's 21 and a half years old. I've watched him grow up and he fully buys in. He understands how we feel about this. He understands our philosophies and what we want to do. And, you know, he delivers that most times. And that's part of it. You know, can you keep people here long enough for them to really get it? Because right, away, it's hard for people to get it right away. Mm-hmm. You know, because um, there's a lot of complexity to it. You yeah. Know? Well, so how how do you? Is it just they have to kind of get the experience working here to bridge the gap between the service and the hospitality? It's a little bit of both. I mean, in the training, we talk about it. Like, look, you might not. The hospitality part's easy, really. Like, if you take this to heart, like. We're trying to make these people have a great time. We're trying to make them feel really welcome here. If you're not excellent at timing the pacing and stuff of your tables at first, it'll be okay if they know you really care. Mm-hmm. If you genuinely care and you forget to ring in a beer and a guy waits a little bit for a beer and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And you're genuinely sorry. And he can tell he's probably not going to be that upset about mm-hmm. it. And if and then if you let us know we're still going to make that right by walking over and going, Hey man, sorry about the weight on that beer. That one's on me. And we know that we hire a new person. We might have to comp a few things cause they're going to make some mistakes. And even though the guest is probably going to go, Oh man, don't worry about that. You're like, no, we get it. We appreciate you being cool about it, but that's our mess up. We're going to take care of that beer. Mm-hmm. And that has to do with like, you know, tell the staff, like, listen, you got to tell us when you mess up. It's okay to mess up. You're going to mess up. That's why we're here. If you never messed up, we wouldn't even need to have a manager here. Right. Yeah. You know, like if yeah. you never messed up and everything yeah. was perfect, yeah. y'all would just be here and we just have cooks sending out food. If they were perfect, the food would never need to be checked or anything like that. And it would just be, you know, but we're all people and we all make mistakes. And mm-hmm. so being able to address those and moving forward and like fixing that problem um, before it gets to like, somebody having an overall bad experience. Mm-hmm. Um, That's so, cool. Yeah. Uh, I do. I want to hear about number two. Um, number two um, was a restaurant in Spain and it kind of was in between those two spots, a place called Canataneta. Probably said about 40 people. It's run by three sisters. One's a chef. One runs the front of house. One does some wine stuff. The, the building was in uh, a house that their aunt used to live in. Cool. Um, it's in a very little small village in Mallorca, like way off the beaten path. There's no cell service out there. We're like, at least for our cell phones and you drive out there and the food is unbelievable. Um, but just super thoughtful, but like the most, like the most personal, dining experience I've ever had that like, I felt like when I left, 
Like I was legitimately part of their family. Like wow. the sister who's pouring the wine is telling you about the food her sister made and how proud she is of it and how it's, this is the salt that, um, or this is the olive oil that my uncle makes just down the street. Wow. And these plates you're eating on, there's a guy in the village who makes all these plates for us. And you know, this salt, my mom, uh, you know, gets this seawater and like dries it out and makes the salt for this. And it was unbelievable food, you know, not crazy expensive or anything, but just the chef, it is like higher end kind of cuisine, but the chef, and you know, I, I always ask if I can like see the kitchen just cause it's fascinating for me. And the chef just seemed to like, they just get it. You know, like I sat down from the time I sat down to the time I left, everything was just perfect. The service was warm and welcoming and, you know, I think they fully, like they were literally, hey, we're welcoming you. This is our aunt's home. We grew up in this home. Yeah. We're welcoming you into our actual home. This feels like my home. That was their actual home. Mm -hmm. And it's their act. Like I say, this is my family. Like I spend more time with most of my cooks and, and servers and people I work with than I do with my real family. Um, so we have a, we say it's our family, but like for them, this is actually their family mm -hmm. and it's actually their home. And it's actually food that is from their homeland and they're cooking like olives from down the street and using salt from the ocean that's, you know, 50 kilometers away and olive oil from, you know, here. And, and it was just, there was so much passion evident in it. And not only that, the food was incredibly good mm. and perfectly executed. And it was just overall, just one of the most enjoyable, enjoyable meals I've ever had. Just, it was, it was like a, I was like, man, this is like the perfect restaurant. You know, it was so relaxed and casual and comfortable, but also so elevated in like technique and flavor and all that. But also just like the hospitality was off the charts. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, those are my top. I've got a bunch of other ones that I I can't really rank. They're all in the top yeah. range, yeah. but those three are ranked. I don't know if one if one ever gets passed up, it'll be like the best day ever. You know, like I don't, I don't know if that's a thing. Those are all, how long ago was all three of those? So the first was before you started, opened your first restaurant, right? No, the first one was, was, yeah, I mean, I was young. I was 20, first one would have been 2014 or 2013. First one would have been 2013. Okay. 2013, the first two, one and three. And then the last one would have been <clears throat> last May, May uh, of okay. 2018. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, those first two, like they're still up there, yeah. you know? And, um, and I've eaten a ton of fantastic meals since then. Just none that I've had. Those are also like that because of the impact it had on me of like, this is what's capable. Like this is what's yeah, out what's there. possible, yeah. Um, what's but, like the, go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, I was gonna say, what's the, um, so like you being a chef is one thing, running a restaurant is, uh, can be another thing. What's, uh, and then you, you've been talking about wanting to be a chef since you were a kid. So what's the uh, bigger pull for you? Is it preparing the actual dish or is it kind of cultivating the experience overall? So the food is certainly paramount for me. Um, it's what's the most important, but as I've, as I've grown as a chef, I've realized that what's important for me is not necessarily what's important for the guest. Okay. So like 
I swore when we opened, I would never have chicken Parmesan on our menu. <laughs> swore. I also swore we'd never have a Caesar salad. Swore. Oh, do you have both now? I have both now. <laughs> they are very good versions of them. They're very different and unique from what you would get at another place. Mm -hmm. But that was my ego before. Like, I'm not doing that. You know, we had dishes on our opening menu and like subsequent. So we changed our menu seasonally. We're three and a half years in. We've probably had 13 different menus, not completely different, but probably about 40 to 50 percent of the menu would change wow. with the seasons, which is a big undertaking. So like since we've opened, we've had. I mean, I don't know, a hundred, probably a hundred different dishes on the menu, maybe wow. more than that. Um, and some that have stayed the same. And then on top of that, all the features that we do, we've served 350 different dishes here. Hmm. Um, and like for a while, every night we had a land-based protein feature, a, a sea-based protein feature and a featured salad. That was for like over a year. So we had three features a day for a year. I typically changed two to three times a week. Hmm. So like in that one year, it was a prodigious amount of work to get all that done. Yeah. And we tried about a bunch of different stuff. But I started to be more aware of not just aware, but also more like, look, this this isn't just about you. Like there, there's a huge part of being a chef that is ego based. Um and you should have that to some extent because like it's what pushes you to be good right like if if it's if you don't want to be the best at something then like you're not gonna be that good at it and that's you know um but there's also a matter of like you know we gotta we're here to like back to what's on my arm mm -hmm. like we're trying to make people happy right would they be happier eating a delicious chicken parmesan than they would you know, a wild boar ribs or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it comes down to the right person, like the person that's like your ideal guest, they might be more happy with the latter, the little more challenging, a little more out there, a little more unique, more thought went into it. But when you're have to balance the business side of this, mm -hmm. I need to pay all the bills. Mm -hmm. I need more people to be happy than less people to be happy. Mm -hmm. And the, getting the most people happy will be to serve food that gets people in the door, that is welcoming and inviting and delicious, and then delivered with, you know, like chick, our chicken Parmesan. It's delicious. It's super satisfying. It will make you happy if you eat it, like guaranteed. Mm. So for me, like I got over the, like I need to be cooking something that I think is unique and different and special on every part of the menu. So there's still things that we do that are like that, but more of it has become, it's more like egalitarian. Like we're going to do, we're cooking for the masses, but we're not going to be Applebee's or Chili's. Okay. You know, there's a, there's a fine line. Right. Like, yeah. Could I like, could I serve spinach artichoke dip? And could I serve like, you know, uh, like a, you know, the stuff that everybody serves. Could I serve all those things and make more money? Yes, probably so. Mm. There is a balancing act of like, at, do I lose myself? Like, do we lose our whole idea as a restaurant, our thought to do that? 
And do we think that would benefit us long term? You know, like, will that pay off in the long run with us being happier and us being proud of what we do? Because that's a super huge part of this. Um, you know, and this, is, this was I was thinking like this is kind of an interesting point because it's I know you it's always like 80 20 rule these you hear like do 80% for them. You got the 20% for yourself to, so what, what is, how do you balance it in your head of making sure that you're not catering to the mat? Because to be, I mean, it's just a plain fact. The masses don't have the best taste in like the, well, yeah. you know, the best food. So, yeah. but you want to create something that is an, ex- an, uh, an extremely high end experience and something that's as close to perfection as possible. So how, where do you get that? Cause you got to pay the bills, but so you, you have take to start, you have to find, like, let's say our chicken parmesan, right? It's very simple, but I want every single component to be perfect every single time. We make all of our pasta in-house here. So it's getting served over a bed of spaghetti. We make the spaghetti every day. The longest the pasta sits is two days. Mm. So after two days, it's being thrown out or it's being fed to the staff or family meal or something like that. Um, so like, that's one thing we're gonna do perfect. Like the pasta is going to be perfect. It's going to be cooked perfectly. Um, we make our red sauce every couple of days and it's, that's going to be perfect every time. And we're going to find pride and perfection of even simple things. So like our chicken Parmesan, it's going to be really crispy. And then we're going to buy really high quality cheese. Our red sauce is going to be great. The sauce for this, we're going to pull it up when the chicken is still really nice and moist. We're going to cook it in the oven until the cheese is perfectly melted. If it's not, you know, if it's you leave it in there too long, the cheese starts to break and get greasy. If you leave it in there, you know, not long enough, the cheese isn't really melted. And then if you leave it in there, you know, too long, also the crust starts to get soggy with the red sauce. Mm -hmm. We're going to plate it. We're going to send it out right away. And when we plate it, it's going to be perfectly plated. There's not going to be any specks of red sauce in the plate. It's going to get a dusting of really nice freshly grated Parmesan cheese. And we're gonna take pride in the fact that that's gonna be the best or one of the best chicken Parmesans you've ever eaten. Even though it's, look, you get a table of like, sometimes the table and you're like, you know, a ticket comes in and it's two orders of meatballs, two orders of chicken Parmesan, you know, a, two Caesar salads. And you're like, come <laughs> on, we got all this other stuff on the menu that we work so hard that's different. Yeah. But we're gonna make sure that you love Like when you leave here, I want you to like, and maybe it's this, maybe it's today, you got chicken Parmesan and Caesar salad and meatballs, and then it's awesome. Yeah, and you're gonna come back. Next time you come back, maybe you can go, last time I was here at the chicken Parmesan, you recommend anything else? And because you knew that was so good, you're willing to trust us on, yeah, why don't you try our fish feature tonight? It's fantastic, let me tell you about it. Mm. And then the server tells you that, and you go, try that, all right, cool, and you try that, and then, then we get to actually show you what we can do. Um, so there's some stuff you just got to have, mm-hmm. you know, like, and that's what we, and not only that, like maybe you come and you never get anything except chicken parm, but you tell all your friends, that's the best chicken Parmesan I've ever had in my life. I go there once a month and I eat the chicken Parmesan or I go there once a week and eat chicken Parmesan and I'll never get anything else because it's too good. Mm-hmm. That also is cool, you know, like, and for the longest time I didn't find like, joy yeah. in that I was gonna at say, all. Is that a struggle for no, you? No, it, it was. I, yeah, um, yeah. You know, I never, I've never been bothered with, like you asked me how my day, like my day starts. So, 
average day is 12 to 14 hours, average day. Some days are 16, 18, you know, um, it's a struggle at times to like, you just have an enormous amount of stuff to get done. Mm -hmm. This is not a business that's easily, like you can't really have a set schedule when you're like, uh, and we're, we're three and a half years in, we're finally getting to a point where like, we've we've kind of gotten some consistency in sales and all that. But for the longest time, you had no idea how your day was gonna go. You might do 20 people, you might do 150 people. Mm -hmm. And so like you might go, all right, cool, I'm not gonna work Wednesday morning or third, I'm not going to work Thursday morning. And then, you know, you're not going to work. And then a cook calls in sick Thursday morning. So now you're working Thursday morning yeah, yeah. or, um, you just get hammered Wednesday night <laughs> and you're out of everything. Mm. Like, all right, well, we expect to sell a lot of pizza, but for some reason we sold all of our appetizers <laughs> sold like crazy last night. So we're out of this, 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 and this. Well, I guess I'm getting in at five in the morning to prep all that stuff. Um, you know, and so, you know, like a typical like work week, I'm in at six in the morning, at least two days. And I, those days I'll typically still work till nine or 10. Um, we close at nine, but you're not always leaving then. Sometimes mm -hmm. I am, you know, I have cooks now that I, that have been working with me for a while that I trust to like, all right, cool. You're going to shut everything down. When I come in in the morning, everything's going to be right. I can get started. You know, the, the best time for me, I find the most productive time for me to be in is when nobody else is in the building. Mm. And really early, before the emails start coming in, before the phone starts ringing off the hook, before there's problems, you know, you're always putting out fires as an owner, manager. But at six in the morning, it's me and whatever's on, you know, my speaker. And mm. sometimes it's a podcast, sometimes it's just music. I've got like a, I'll make playlists on days where I know I've got like a really intense amount of prep to get done. I'll make upbeat playlists the night before that like songs I just really like that I, I just enjoy that keep me in a positive mood. Mm -hmm. You know, like uh, we do, um, you know, and so stuff like that. And from six to nine, there's no other cooks here typically unless I've asked somebody to come in early. So in those three hours, I can get more done than I will the next six hours of my day. Yeah. And so I feel like I set myself up certain days. Like if I know I got a lot going on, I'll write the prep list the night before I'll look over the prep list. All right, we got to make meatballs. All right. So, you know, I need to make sure I've got all the stuff for that. Like, you know, I'm making pepper jelly today. I need to make sure I ordered, I'm making pepper jelly tomorrow. I need to make sure I have produce coming in tomorrow. So I have all the right stuff for that. So we have, it's lists. You've got prep lists. You have order guides for each vendor you use. You've got par sheets. You've got all this stuff that you use to keep yourself organized. You do that and then you write it all on a, we use a dry erase board for almost everything. And like, like tomorrow morning, I know who's working in the kitchen. I'll be in New Orleans, but my kitchen manager wrote out each person has an individual prep list based on their strengths and weaknesses. All right, so-and-so is here. He's just doing prep all day. He's not going to be making any pizza. He's not going to be working the line. He's just doing prep. So we're going to give him a lot of the time-consuming stuff that you can't really walk away from in the middle of. I got this other guy. He's doing prep from 9 to 11, but he's also setting up the line for service. And then once 11 hits, he'll be cooking for guests coming in the door. Mm. So he can't have as much prep, but also he's really great at our pastas. So I'm going to load him up on pastas. And then this other guy is really great at this. 
And so it's playing to your team's strengths, playing to your strengths. There's some stuff that even still I try to do most of the time because like big batches of certain things. Um, like we have a wild boar ragu on our menu that is my favorite pasta we do. It's with a mafalde, which is like a little narrow lasagna noodle. My favorite pasta we've ever had on the menu. It's, I don't think it'll ever come off. I love it. It's delicious. It's very simple on the plate, but it's like crazy good. I freaking love it. And when anybody asks me like, what are, I'm like, get that, <laughs> try that. If you don't like it, like, I'll eat it, you know, like it's <laughs> yeah. not like it's delicious. Nobody's ever not liked it. You mm-hmm. don't, you don't trust me, get it. Just trust me, you know? And so that dish I make, we prep, we prep like, you know, 10 gallons of that at a time. And then we vacuum seal it and freeze it because it's like a five hour process or uh, that's it. it's like a three hour process to make mm. this. But that's like, if you, if you're doing it all from scratch, so like you got to grind the wild boar, you got to prep all the stuff. If you have everything prepped, a three-hour process wow if you have to prep it all it's a five-hour process mm. so i make that almost every time because if you mess that up you messed up two weeks worth of that pasta sauce yeah you know and it's also very expensive right. to like scratch that and start over and the amount of time you know mm. and so i make that one and also because i really enjoy making it like i like cooking mm-hmm. i love the act of cooking and so for me, this, this, like this was another question too. Like, how much time are you cooking? Oh, I cook a lot. Okay, um, is that something? And you need to like you you want to be in there and cooking. Yeah. And, and so like right recently, like the last couple of months, we've been getting ready to uh, open our new patio. We've been in that process. So I've been having cooks on, and I've been kind of taking a little bit of a step back from actually cooking, and I'm more of in a supervisory mode where I'm watching everybody cook because they all need to get practice and reps for when we get busier, when we add, we're adding 48 seats outside. We only seat about 90 inside. So it's a huge capacity increase. And we're gonna slowly ease into that. But if, if I don't have these cooks getting as many reps and as many shifts as possible right now, whenever we have that increase, the, the idea is they're all solid by the time we're ready. And then I step in as an extra cook at that point, mm. And then we don't really need to bring on new people. Mm, okay. Um, because if you bring on new people, then they all have to learn all this right. stuff. So I have my guys right now learning everything and getting more and more practice and getting more comfortable and everything. And I just kind of step in when they need help. All right. Got a little busy for a minute. We're kind of getting in the weeds or, Hey, that's not the right way to do this. Let me show you the right way to do this. Um, so kind of stepping in and, uh, but on any given night, I will see or touch. So we're kind of broken up with two stations. We have our pizza station in the front, the pizza ovens and the dining room. And then we have the back kitchen, whatever station I'm typically more in the back, but it just kind of depends. If I'm in the back, I will see or touch 80% of dishes that come out that night. Um, The goal is to see or touch every single one of them to Mm -hmm. make sure that they're all perfect. We don't miss anything. Um, If I'm working pizza, I see far fewer dishes that are in the back. So I, d- I don't love to work pizza mm-hmm. unless I have like my sous chef here who um, then he can be in the back, right? Like my number two guy who yeah. he understands what I want exactly what the standard is. So if he's in the back, I know that it's just like having me back there. Um, but I like working pizza a lot because not only can I see the pizzas coming out, I can see the dining room. Yeah, you see the and people. so then I get to see I'm looking around. If I'm working pizza at least 20 times during a night, I'll pull over a server or a bartender or another manager and be like, hey, go check on that table. Like they look like 
you know, and you keep an eye on stuff. And then like sometimes I'll, if it's kind of slow, I'll walk over and talk to a table. I see that. I can see that I've never seen him here before. I'm in a small town. So I recognize a lot. Of, oh, I've never seen that person. All right. We go ask him how everything was. Or I'll notice somebody looking around and I don't see a person I can grab. So like if somebody's looking around, they probably need something. Mm-hmm. So I'll go address it. Or maybe I see a person who's here every week and I'm going to go tell them thanks for coming in again and say hello. I mean, we have we have regulars now. You know, we have people that are here two days a week, three days a week. We That's have cool. people that are right by us with one family, really two or three families that are in here at least three days a week, Dang. you know. And it's just, it's cool. And you talk to them and how are things going? Oh, we've seen the patios coming along. How, you know, and it's like talking to friends because they're here so much, you mm-hmm. know, and they obviously appreciate what we do. And it's nice to like, oh man, everything was delicious tonight. Or like, you know, I'll like, how was that? You know, they're very, one of, one of the families is very particular about the way they wanted one of their pastas cooked. It's just our side of linguine. It's just olive oil, garlic, chili flake, salt, and fresh pasta, right? That's it. Well, they were particular about how they wanted theirs cooked. Well, I kept not being here when they would come in and they kept having an issue with like how it was going to, uh, and everybody's like, they're so difficult. The cats said, so, blah, blah, blah. They're so difficult. And so I went out one, one night and I was finally here when they were there. And I was like, Hey, listen, I was like, I know we haven't been doing a great job of getting this exactly the way you want it. It's not the way we normally do it. Mm-hmm. So it's not, a, you know, I don't blame the cooks and stuff, but I walked out. I'm like, you need to tell me what you want and what I'm going to do. I was like, I'm not kidding. I'm going to make you this until you say it's perfect. Because y'all hear all the time. Mm -hmm. If I have to make you five of them tonight, I'll make you five of them. And then from there on out, I'll know exactly what you want. And I'm happy to make sure the rest of the staff knows exactly how you want it. Because they get like, they'll come with five people. They'll get like three orders of that. Mm -hmm. It's like they all like it. And so, you know, she tells me, pretty simple. Go in the back, make it, bring it out. It's perfect. This is how we want it. All right. This is how you want it every time. Cool. So they come in, they say, Hey, can you, you know, we want three oars linguine. Um, make sure Gavin knows it's the cats's excellent. And the, the whole staff knows exactly how they like it now. Mm-hmm. And that's just, so when that comes in tickets, the cats's boom, that's, it's like that. And so, you know, like it took me like having that discussion to get it right. And they were still coming in, but they certainly had to have been getting a little frustrated that like yeah. we couldn't get it right, right. five times. Right. Um, and so seeing things like that, seeing somebody like kind of picking at their food, you're like, all right, so clearly they don't like that, mm-hmm. you know, and like get rid of the fact that I'm offended that they don't like something we made. <laughs> maybe we didn't, maybe they didn't understand what they were getting. Hey, is something wrong with this? Um, and look, sometimes we actually did screw up. Yeah, you know, um, the fish is just really dry. All right, let me take a look at that. I'm gonna take it to the kitchen. I'm gonna crack it open. Yeah, who cooked this piece of fish? Hey, this is way overdone. Um, you know, they would prefer this pasta over here instead. So then I'm gonna go back to the table. Hey, look, pasta's going, whatever. Whatever that is. Mm-hmm. But that's why I love working pizza because you get to see that, but you also get the the good feeling of the restaurant's full. Mm-hmm. Uh, my absolute favorite thing to do ever, and it doesn't get to happen often because I'm busy, but when the restaurant is Full, full, jam-packed. At night, I like to walk across the street. Uh, We have all big windows in the front. And I like to look in and see everybody in the restaurant having a good time. And it's like the best. It's the best feeling. You can see like families having a good time. And you're like, you know, like, 
you see, you know, groups of friends chatting and there's like a birthday party over there. And then you see people walking in and the hostess knows them because they're there all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, that's when you see it all. And you're like, man, all what we do, like all the work, this makes it worth it. Mm -hmm. You know, like looking up and seeing like, man, all those people are having a really great time at our restaurant. Like mm -hmm. there, uh, nobody in there is upset. They've all forgotten about their shitty start to the day and they've all forgotten about, you know, whatever. And they're just enjoying themselves and it's hugely in part of because of what we've cultivated here and the whole experience yeah you know and that's just the best that's the absolute most high you can get as a restaurant owner is seeing that that's cool that's really cool how, how does that compare to how you were kind of imagining that when you were a kid i never thought about, about it. it from that when i was a kid i thought about it when i was a kid it was just cooking really i wanted to cook i love to cook like the, when I was a kid, a chef and like, you know, it was cooking. And, and that used to be a thing until recently. Like now, now chefs have to think more about this and be more involved in this side of it. And I'm hugely thankful that I had a front of house background before I ever cooked professionally. Mm. You know, like I got into it knowing I was like, look, I want to wait tables because I got to know how the whole this whole system works. And I did front of house professionally for nine years before I was a chef. Um, and it was hugely valuable. I, I think, you know, at times I'm like, man, if I had committed those nine years to being a chef, I would probably be a much better chef. I would have that much more time. I would, but I don't think I would be here. It would be mm -hmm. a different thing. And, um, what, did, how did you get, how did you get started? Like what made you leave whatever job you were in to open up a restaurant? I'm super so was, curious about this. I was working in restaurants before I opened this restaurant. What, what made you want to open? Like, so my buddy and I had talked about it for a while. Uh -huh. Just opening a restaurant. We had bounced some concepts around. I had a notebook full of ideas and stuff like that. And we actually looked at this building like a year before that came up for lease. It was just for sale. And we didn't have nearly enough money to buy a, a restaurant. Um, and... You know, we bounced around some ideas and then it just kind of, you know, we always talking about it and stuff and I had ideas, but it was never like, I want to do one thing, you know, it was just like, I want to do something and I don't know what yet, but we're gonna do something. And this spot came up for lease again. And like, while I came up for lease, I don't know why, like a couple days before I had been saying something, like I had been thinking about a couple stuff and I had kind of like, I remember we met. I was buying some bar stools for the Pelican house and he helped me grab, like load some stuff up. And I was like, man, what would you think about doing like a, like a wood fired pizza, like Italian concept with like, and he was like, you gotta be kidding me. He's <laughs> like, I was going to ask you if you want to do like an Italian, like pizza thing. And I was like, yeah, but like, I want to do like a strong Southern influence. I was like, I don't want it to be like, Sicilian, like what everybody's grandma cooks. Like, I want to do this. And he was like, yeah, that'd be badass. And I was like, well, I wrote a menu yesterday and that menu with like two changes, pretty much. That's it was wow. our opening menu. Wow. We changed very little. And I wrote it on like a napkin the day before most of it just scribbled, you know, and, um, and it didn't change much, but that was, you know, so that was, we talked about that and he's like, you know, that building we looked at last year, he's like, it's up for lease again, or it's up, it's up for lease now. Somebody bought it. They put a new roof on it. did some renovations. Now it's for lease. The restaurant that was there for the last year closed. 
He's like, you want to go look at it? Well, yeah. So we signed a lease on Valentine's Day, 2016. And then we opened up June 28th. So three and a half months later, four and a half, four and a half months later, mm-hmm. we opened up and we did a lot to the building. Like the amount, like when, we, when people were like, how long ago did y'all sign a lease? And we're like, <laughs> y'all open now? We're like, yeah, it was nuts. I mean, those four and a half months were like cra- opening a restaurant is the most stressful, crazy, insane thing I think you can do. Mm. Like Dave Chang has a really fantastic podcast and he's a, um, he's a amazing chef. He's got a ton of restaurants around the world, Korean guy, but is like a huge, huge influence on the dining in America today. And they do a pre-opening and post-opening diaries of all their restaurants now. Um, so they've done three of them since he started his podcast and the weeks leading up to it, he interviews like the chef and the general manager and stuff like that. And then like weeks after he'll do the same thing. And he's like, <laughs> and you know, it's, it's crazy because the experience is pretty much the same at any level. Mm-hmm. It's crazy, stressful, pull your hair out, you know, like this amazing optimism and hope and all this. And then like the real thing starts and there's problem after problem and yeah. all these issues. And it's, it's pretty fascinating. Um, but really cool to hear because, you know, you know, your experience isn't unique, but it still kind of feels that way. You know, like if you don't know anybody else that's done the exact same thing or you right. haven't talked about it, it feels you're like, this is the craziest thing ever. Like <laughs> why would anybody do this? And then like, then you do it again. You know, and that's yeah. what he talks about a lot. He's like, every time we open one, we're like, we're never going to do this again. And then, you know, another opportunity comes up and or whatever, do and you're doing it again. That's cool. Yeah. Was it, what was the scariest moment before you opened this place? Uh, I was um, going to ask, I, I want to ask that question. And then I was going to also, which you could do this one too. I want to hear about the worst uh, experience with the worst table that you've ever had here. But so we didn't get to turn our pizza oven on because of a fire marshal permit. The first day you didn't have a pizza oven on and the day. We couldn't turn it on until the day before. Wow. So we tested our pizzas. Like we had a buddy that let us use his oven one day. He had like a mobile wood fired oven, but like we didn't turn our pizza oven on until the day before we opened And that was like, we didn't know, like the guy was like, you can't, like we had to get a conditional permit. It was a giant pile of Mm -hmm. like red tape. We had to get a conditional permit to open. They were saying they thought we needed a fire suppression system added, which is going to push things back like two weeks. We were out of money. Like we couldn't wait two weeks. We had to start taking money in. We were paying staff already. You know, we were, you know, had taken reservations, like all this stuff. And the guy was like, you can't open. And we're like, we have to open. He was like, well, open without pizza. We're like, we're a pizza restaurant. <laughs> like we can't do that. Also several other items in our menu are supposed to be coming out of this oven. Turns out that ends up being okay. You know, but we had a hole in our floor. Like they were redoing our subfloor eight days before we opened. Like Dang. we had a, a 15 foot hole across the middle of our dining room floor like a week before we opened. Dang. So like, it was a lot, like there was a very stressful lead up. Um, worst table I've had. Yeah. Tell me those are, those are tough because I forget. Have you had a anybody like throw something across a restaurant or anything crazy like that? We've had some drunk women get in a fight in the middle of the restaurant oh, before. Wow. For a uh, that's exciting. At lunch, at lunch they were drunk. It was a um, it was a <laughs> a local school's homecoming mom's homecoming uh. luncheon. This was about eighty very intoxicated women uh, drinking like you know martinis at eleven o'clock in the morning. That is hilarious. And uh, we had them breaking some glasses and 
trying to, you know, we had to like escort four or five women out of the, out of the building. Wow. Um, one of the worst, we had a guy leave a review, wrote us a bad review on Facebook before he even got his food. From the table? From the, he's sitting at the table. He's sitting at the table, said he hated the cocktail list. And this is on his post, like hate the cocktail list. Haven't gotten my food yet, but I'm sure it'll be terrible. Like something like that. And we're like, what? And like, we're looking, there's not that many tables in the restaurant. It's like five or 6 PM. We're like looking around and we recognize the guy and we're like, (laughs) what? So we walk over to him. Me and my partner was like, Hey man, like, is there something wrong? He's like, I don't know why you're standing over me, threatening me. And we're like, okay, <laughs> like, I don't know what's going on. And I was like, uh, what? it was just wild. And like the rest of the people at his table were like mortified by his behavior. So they didn't have, they didn't know it was, they had no clue that he was. And we're like, look, man, like, you just said like, you haven't even like you, you said the whole cocktail list was terrible. You had one drink, <laughs> you know, like you said, you haven't gotten your food yet, but you're sure it's going to be terrible. Like, you have some vendetta against us. Like, did we do something to you that we don't know about? Like we offend you in any sort of way when you walked in. And, um, so that one was kind of wild. It just sticks out because it was nuts. That is bizarre. Um, but you know, like there's some bad tables, but I try Like, you know, like I said before, like I kind of have changed my mindset to like, it's almost just like with anyone, man, people don't Somebody's still calling. closed on Mondays. What time is it? 820 on 820. Monday. Wow. You know, like, you know, like people, I just assume that if you're an asshole that you probably had a bad day or that somebody else hurt you prior in life yeah. and that it's not your fault. Especially if you're leaving a review before you even like, like finish the look, experience. People that, and look, we don't get a ton of bad reviews, um, but the type of people that leave reviews of restaurants are exactly that, right? Like I've had some terrible experiences in my life at restaurants, at stores, at whatever. I've never once sent a complaint email. Mm. Never once have I sent an angry letter or wrote a negative review because I just moved on with my life. Mm -hmm. I might've not gone back to that place. Like I can understand if Somebody came in and I just insulted their children (laughs) and, you know, poured some food on their head. Then being like, I'm going to write a bad review about this place. But I don't I cannot even grasp the mentality somebody has to have to have a dining experience and go, I'm going to rip these. Like, it's just very much to me like a feeling of self-importance. Like I need, I, people need to know mm-hmm. what I think about this. Mm-hmm. And like, I got pretty strong opinions a lot about us, about a lot of stuff, but unless we're talking about that thing, I'm probably going to keep them to myself. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'm certainly like, if you ask me my opinion about a restaurant, I'll give you my unbiased, full blown truthful. If I think it's trash, you'll know. And I'll go into detail of why I think it's that. Mm-hmm. But I've never once written a review of a restaurant on the internet because, first of all, it's the internet. Like, who cares? Mm. You know, it's like, it's this. This this reminds me, and I was going to ask you about this because the uh, speaking your mind, um, just straight out speaking your mind, what you're thinking was, uh, which I actually thought was awesome, and it may be because like I know you personally, but I thought that was like an awesome part of whenever you're on Chopped because they like. 
because they took all of the parts where you were just like speaking straight and plain. They used all of those parts for you, and then like took all the rosy parts for like everybody else oh, yeah. in the interviews, and they like made you look look like the terrible guy. Oh yeah, which look, I, I thought was I still, hilarious. I still get like hate emails yeah. and stuff when it airs again <laughs> when I get a fresh airing. Um, like I'll get like one or two Instagram followers, and then like two just terrible emails <laughs> and like a one star Google review from somebody who's like lives in Wisconsin. Yeah. Has never been here. Yeah. Um, that's amazing. Yeah. It was wild. Cause they interview me and like, you know, when I talk about food, I talk about it very passionately and like, you know, I talk about like how I learned all this stuff from my grandmother and like, I have this sense of like family and never once they show they anything that makes me I never like, saw it. Yeah. like that makes me seem like a good, nice guy, like a human <laughs> and like a human. And then it's just like, you know, they made me look like just the biggest asshole. Like I watched it and I was like, man, it really made me look like an <laughs> asshole. You know, like, hey, look, I know I was very, and they also just kind of like, there's it's television, of course, right? Of so course. like, if you're not also, if you watch that and you can't go, they probably did a little bit of TV work there. <laughs> then like, then your opinion of hating me, I'm going to take a little less mm -hmm. seriously because you don't, you don't know that this is TV. Mm -hmm. Like you can't tell that they're saying the same exact thing over and over with me. Yeah. And like, you know, and so like, there's just some behind the scenes stuff that happens. You know, they also interview you at the end so you find After out everything you is lost. Over. Yeah, yeah. Hey, by the way, you don't get fifty grand, even though you thought you did. Um, you don't get that, and um, we're gonna do this two and a half hour exit interview. Oh my! And that long? That long? And it's in your contract. You have to do it. Wow. And then we're gonna rehash the whole day. And there's a producer that was taking notes on everything you did all day. So they're gonna ask you like. You know, hey, at this point in round one, when you were doing this, you know, what was going through your head? So you talk about that. And then they'll ask you like, then they'll ask you a bunch of stuff about the other competitors and this and that. And like, if you don't give them an answer they want, they'll keep asking you questions mm. until like, they're gonna get what they want. Mm. And like in the little stew room that, you know, we're all just sitting there. Those people, nobody's really talking in between rounds. So you're sitting there like thinking about what you did and they'll come in with a camera they're like, all right, so. <laughs> how was it? And nobody says anything. And so they have to ask you pointed questions and they're like, you know, they're like, all right, Gavin, do you feel like, and they're like, now answer the question in a way that we didn't ask the question. So if they say like, do you feel like you did really well in that round? So you have to say, I feel, I feel like, like I did really well right. in that round. Yeah. And so it's like, come on, like obviously. And look, I genuinely thought I was a better chef than everybody there. Mm -hmm. Like I've said plenty of times, like, I was raised in a generation of like, don't do it if you're not going to try to be the best. Right. So I walk in there and I see these other chefs and like, also there's things that as a chef, I hold very high in prestige, like cleanliness and, or like, that's not just me though. That's chef stuff. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to be clean. That's why they originally wore white everything to show how clean they were. And this guy that's cooking next to me that turns out to win that everybody, you know, thought I hated him because he had multiple sclerosis, which I didn't even know that until the show aired. You really? Know? Yeah, they didn't tell us that or anything. That was like the whole theme of the episode. Yeah, they didn't was, tell us that. They that didn't was talk, literally the storyline. They line. didn't talk about it oh in the my. thing. And wow. he's like really messy, right? Like he's got stuff all over him. They changed his apron and his chef coat in between every single round because he just had shit all over him. Wow. And like, I, I don't know why this guy's this messy. And I don't know if multiple cirrhosis still to this day is an excuse for that. Like, you know, like slow down a little bit, like stop flinging food on yourself. I don't yeah. know. He had food on his back after one 
thing. Wow. Like, I was like, this is wild that this is acceptable. You know, like, Gavin, how do you feel about him having food on his back? Like, and so, and so they're saying stuff. And like, one of the things I said, they quoted a context. I said, like, I would never allow him to work for me. Uh, yeah, I said I something that. about like, you know, like based on like there, I said something about how like he doesn't work clean mm. and like, you know, like I would never allow that in my kitchen. And they're like, could you say that again? And I'm like, you know, I would never like based on how he does this, like I would never allow him to work for me. And they just cut it like I would never let him work for me. Like and it's and it, and it made it seem like it was because he had MS or whatever. You were like you were like the TV producer's dream. Oh, yeah. I gave him some good material yeah, for no sure. Doubt. And, you know, and um, and then they did like. Oh, we're gonna move three people into the finale. We've never done that in the history of Chop before. And I was like, then why are you starting it today on my episode? <laughs> like, I'm trying to win fifty grand, like money that I could certainly use for this restaurant. Right. Like, you know, you open a restaurant, you're in debt up to your eyeballs, and you know, so that happens. And then just a bunch of other stuff that I feel bit like I feel like I sound bitter talking about. So it's probably best <laughs> if I don't. I, I wanted to, <clears throat> I wanted to ask you about it because you, I think, uh, I don't know if it was like we went to the Pelican House and watched the episode. Yeah, I, I think it was the first one, and then. I think maybe you, I don't remember how I found out, but you, I found out from from you directly or indirectly that they like did all kinds of stuff that, yeah. to like, so I was going to ask you, first of all, which we just talked about it for like 10 minutes, but what was it like, like being on the TV? I want to hear some behind the scenes type stuff, but then also like they basically rigged the episode for the guy. Yeah. So they added time to the clock, which technically they can do when you read all the rules it basically says the rules are just for you yeah the producers they, they can, can do whatever, whatever they, they want, want of course so but i find out like i'm asking these camera guys and producers some of which have been on the show from day one they added so the guy cuts open his pork chop and it's raw not undercooked it is cold and pink and still raw wow because he tried to cook a double cut pork chop in 30 minutes and i saw him cut that double cut chop and i was like this guy's going home no I way he's cooking yeah. that all I have to do is not be the last place. I'm moving to the finale, like the finale round. And so he cuts it open and the judges see it on camera. And then you hear all this chatter and I'm, this is like a minute left. I'm plating. Other guy next to me is plating. This guy's got a raw pork chop. He's like, oh, fuck. They go, add six minutes to the clock. I'm like, what? This is the whole premise of the show is that we have a time limit. Right. So they add six minutes to the clock. They don't show that on television, obviously. No, I had no idea. Watch, so then they the move that along. And then not only that, he dropped two of his pork chops on the ground, rinsed them off in the sink, still uses them, which they've never allowed that. Like if somebody drops something on the ground on chop before, I've seen episodes where they go, you can't use that. Throw that in the trash. Right. Well, this guy, they let him use it. And then they add six minutes to the clock. And then on top of that, they move three people into the finale round. When clear, like clearly there wasn't supposed to be that way. Right. And so I was just like, I'm sitting there. I'm like, this is wild. <laughs> like what is going on here? And then we moved to the dessert round and they tell me in the finale that they chopped me. Like we had to chop you because we didn't like your plating in the first round. And I was like, right. What? Yeah. I remember that. I was like, you're chopping me because my plating in the first round, like every deal, your interaction with the judges is like, it's fairly long. You have like five minutes almost with each judge on each course. They're wow. talking to you. They're like giving you real feedback and asking you, hey, why'd you do this that way? Why'd you do this? What was your thought process behind this? And so I'm, you know, I've got an answer for everything. So we're talking and this and that. And the feedback was really overwhelmingly positive on every one of my courses, except for one of them said they didn't like the plating on the first one. 
And I was like, look, like, I think you're wrong because negative space in plating, just like in photography, blah, 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 is important. And one of the judges is like a Michelin star chef. And I'm like, Alex, I know at your restaurant, y'all use plating. Oh, you said this to him like, like this. in the, yeah. Wow. I was like, I know that y'all use, you know, like I've seen pictures of food at your restaurant. Like this is not like some crazy thing. Like I basically had a big plate and I had all the food in one little small corner of it and a lot of negative space, like a little bit of sauce. And I thought it looked beautiful. I was thrilled with it. And then they're like hammering me on the plating. And I was like, whatever y'all can be, it's okay to be wrong. That's fine. Yeah. Um, and the fina- like in the thing they're done, they're like, well, you know, Chef Gavin, you know, uh, this and this, what it came down to, um, we just thought the plating in the first round was a little <laughs> off. And I was like, what about this guy's dirty raw pork chop? And the, <laughs> you know, the, and so it was kind of wild. Um, and of course, like, I didn't really, you can't like get online and talk about it. Right. Like these guys that robbed me, you just look bitter. Like of even course, right now, course, I sound, of course, of course. even right now, I sound, you know, bitter. And so yeah. people would like say stuff online, you know, like, I mean, I was very hated. Gavin hates on the Twitter. guy with MS. Oh, look, yeah, no, I, mean, I, I went through and like saw. I saw Reddit. Oh, some people and I was did like, not like me. Oh my god, people I are had hating. People, people would tell me like, "I hope your restaurant goes out of business." Yeah. I hope your kids get MS one day. That's like, ridiculous. Stuff like that. And I was like, "Whoa, man, these people." That's like so. I, I mean, obviously, reality TV isn't reality. Yeah, so we've again established that. But I would think that a cooking show would, would at least it had have some, some rules to it. kind of around cooking. You yeah. Know? Anyways, uh, so still on the TV show because I'm curious. So in the TV shows, uh, we watch like a few of you know cooking shows. Everybody does, but they're always like, and it's again reality TV. But they have the suspenseful music. It's coming down to the last final second, and then like they barely get their food on their plate, and then it's is that like what it really was like happens? that for a lot of people. Um, I'm sure it's not like that for everybody. One of the rounds. Um, so I, like for me, I was very methodical. Like you kind of had, I wrote, plan I literally good. wrote like a prep list for each thing. I would grab a bus tub. I would walk into the, like I took the first two minutes to do almost nothing. Mm. Like, all right, I'm going to think this whole dish through. I'm going to have a plan for each component. And this is stuff that I've planned in advance. Like, all right, I'm not like a lot of people you see and they just take off running and they're a little looking yeah, around. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. I'm going to sit here for one sec. I'm going to go, all right, I need to use these four ingredients. How am I using all four of them? Okay, does that work in this time frame? Does that work as a cohesive concept? And then if it's the second or third course, does it work with the rest of the meal? Mm-hmm. All right, cool. That's what I'm doing. Now I go in there. And I know everything I need. I'm going to slowly and methodically get all that stuff because being methodical and a little slower is way better than running around like crazy <laughs> and not getting, you know, getting fit on your back. And then you realize that like, oh, I didn't get this stuff I need. I didn't get that. And so I turn, all right, I need to get water boiling. Let me turn the heat up on this. I need to get a pan hot. Let me do that. Now I'm going to go get this stuff. And then just there's a clock looking at the clock. I also know from cooking for a long time how long it takes me to do certain things. I need to clean three artichokes. I can clean artichoke in a minute. Cool. I can clean these three artichokes. You know, I need to break down a chicken. I know I can break down a chicken in a minute and 14 seconds, whatever. Um, and I do a lot of that stuff to time myself. Cause like I do this stuff so much sometimes that it gets a little boring. So if you don't mm-hmm. like sometimes me and my sous chef will be like, all right, you want to see how fast we can do this. Yeah. And it's just like to make things a little more exciting at work. So, you know, we do that. I do that. And, at the end of most rounds, I was plated. Here's what you gotta understand too. 
The judges are eating your food cold no matter what. Okay, that was another question. That They're I eating your food cold no matter what. That's got to suck. They're used to that, right? They know. Okay. They might, if you have a sauce that like is say like a butter-based sauce, they need to try hot. They might get up and taste it while it's on the stove after the round's over. But almost always they're trying your food cold, which means if you're smart, you can plate stuff one second in. It doesn't matter. So if you have one component ready, put it on the plate as soon as it's ready. Because why wouldn't you? Because right. they're going to eat it in 30 minutes anyway. Right. So a lot of people are like, oh, I'm at a restaurant. I got a plate food all at one time. You don't need to do that. If you're serving rice, for instance, you can put the rice on the second it's cooked and you're serving a piece of chicken with it. The second the piece of chicken's cooked, put it on the plate. And then the last minute, all I have left to make is my sauce. My sauce is done. I drizzle my sauce, but everything else is done. So I would go get my plates five minutes into the round, lay them out. And I would go, as soon as anything's done, it's gonna go on the plate. As mm. soon as something's ready, it's gonna go on the plate. And then also an understanding of like, as a chef, like I'm, I'm looking, all right, I'm not gonna wait until a minute left to plate because I know that that's stupid. <laughs> so four minutes out for me was, everything needs to be going onto the plate because what if something messes up? Yeah. I need a little time to fix it. So usually by the time the countdown was starting. I was like wiping off my station, wiping my knives, like standing there, like done. And of course they, even on TV, they don't show that. Mm -mm. They show you like, it's a clip of me plating from five minutes before that they're showing <laughs> Okay, yeah. one second left. Right, that's what I was, I was like, no, there's I, no way I they never come went, down every... I never went, I not one single time in six rounds plated to the last second, mm -hmm. not one time. So a couple of other chefs didn't either. A couple of chefs were down to the last second, you know, on a couple of rounds. Mm -hmm. I think it's a very different deal. I think the more experienced cooks that are cooking every night in a restaurant, like we're cooking under the clock all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, like I'm still it's not an actual clock saying, like, if you don't give me this plate in a certain time, you're done. But when a guest orders a dish, they expect to come out in a certain amount of time. That dish comes in. We're cooking on the clock. Mm -hmm. So we cook on the clock constantly. And so it's not that different from mm -hmm. that. And you're only making four plates, three, and then one for the judges. They tell you, try to make one pretty for the pictures. They're gonna pick the prettiest one for the pictures, or just try to make them all look the exact fucking same and make them look really pretty yeah. because you know what you're doing. If you can't make four good plates, the app round is 20 minutes. That one's pretty fast. 30 minutes is a good bit of time to cook food, especially considering there's ways to get everything done in that amount of time, as long as you are smart about what you decide to make. Mm. Don't make risotto. Don't do it. It's never worked out for anybody on chop before. Mm -hmm. Don't do it. You know why else? Because even if you get it done, it's going to sit there for 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And even if you cooked it perfectly, now it's overcooked for sure. So wouldn't you rather cook something that like doesn't continue to get worse as it sits, <laughs> as it there? sits there? You know? So did you, so I'm less familiar with chop because I think I've probably watched like your two episodes and maybe like one other one but you what do you know going into like before you even go and then what do you know like right before they say go for us we knew the theme so for us it was an alton brown challenge tournament so the whole theme of the tournament was the science and technique of cooking my episode was going to be smoke so smoking foods smoked foods you knew that like before i knew that going in got it and then if you made it to the finale it was in a combination of the three of all four episodes there was smoke molecular gastronomy um fermentation and um i forget what the other one was regardless 
Um, and then right before it starts, so about three minutes before they say go, you see what's in the basket, but only because they have to do shots. So they have you open the basket, taking the stuff out. That's the first time you see it. Then you put everything back in. They film that one more time because mm. they have to make sure they get everybody's reactions. Got it. Then they put it all, then they take it out of the basket, they put it in front of you, and then 30 seconds later they say go. So you have about two to three minutes to process in your head what you can start doing. So if you're really smart, that you take that time to get the dish nailed out in your head. And then you might take another minute to like organize what you have to go do. And then you take off and you go get all your stuff done. I think a lot of chefs take that time and they're not also like having a good understanding of food. Like they give you a hard boiled egg. How many things can you think of in your head that reasonably use a hard boiled egg like that you have to use, right? Like if you're from Louisiana, you might go, all right, potato salad, egg salad. What else gets a hard boiled egg? Not a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you know a lot more about food, you can go, all right, a niçoise salad is like a French tuna and green bean and olive and okay, a niçoise salad has a hard boiled egg, but these are kind of overcooked. So that would be like a really perfectly cooked, like still a little not rock solid in the middle. <laughs> um, what else uses a hard boiled egg? Uh, sauce grabiche is a French sauce with like capers and pickles and this and that. If okay. you don't know these things. Right. So you're so you're illustrating in real time one of my other questions was I watch some I watch cooking shows. Well, okay. The the normal experience restaurant experience you go out especially like kind of the not the higher end experience. You go out and you look at the menu and you're like, "Oh, I know what that is. I know what that is. I want to get that." And you kind of know what to expect. Watching TV shows and especially some of the TV shows where they're doing crazy stuff like even in most of the episode uh, episodes that you were in it's literally to me because I'm super unexperienced don't know anything about cooking it's literally like magic and you're just explaining hard boiled how to use a hard boiled egg and like six different things and I know like deviled eggs so what where does like how do you get from A to B I guess is it literally just it's a craft and you have to spend years doing it or how do you kind it's of explore both, you know like I've got a giant collection of books that I've read and I've ingested a huge amount of food television and food media and then you know like just you know food and cooking has been my number one interest most of my life Mm. you know I went I went through a phase where I did a lot of competitive shooting love that kind of stuff I did I went through a phase where I played paintball for a long time love that but underlying that whole time I was always into food and cooking so literally since I've been a kid this has been one of the things that I've paid attention to the most across the board so 25 years of like being into something Mm -hmm. in a way that like I get really into stuff. I'm not really into moderation. I'm really into it. You know, like if I'm into something, I'm the most into that. Mm. You know, I'm going to read all the books on it. I'm going to read all this. I'm going to listen to all this stuff on it. Um, So it's just it's just time and the amount of knowledge you can absorb. Mm. You know, Um, is it whenever you're thinking through, like, say, on the TV show, for instance, you get you open the box and see the ingredients is it are you uh are you thinking through like a, more of like a catalog of knowledge that you have or is it uh like you're creating something in your head real time to do 
So for Chopped... By the, the way, we've it's like two hours, so yeah. let me know when you have to go. So for <laughs> Chopped, the, um, the deal is, you know, like I want to do something unique, kind of, but I'm going to fall back on something I'm comfortable with so that I know for sure I'm going to put out something that's good. Mm. So like, you know... Um, you know, like if you threw me four basket ingredients right now, I'm going to go, all right, do those four ingredients. Okay, can I do that? Yeah, if you let's want. Let's do it. All right. So we got, let's say, we'll take beef. Okay. That's like probably super like, that's you want to do, one. you want to say like ground beef? You got to be more specific. Oh, I got to be more specific. Wow. Okay. No, let's say, uh, all right, let's say ground beef. Okay. Let's say avocado. Okay. Uh, this is like, I'm lit- I literally already lost myself. Let's say gr- ground beef, avocado. Uh, let's say apples. Okay. And I'm not going like seasonings and stuff, right? No, you're good. Okay. And, uh, and I'll say, I don't know, something, um, I don't, I, see, see, I don't even know. Rice. Let's say rice. Ground beef, avocado, apple, and rice. rice. All right. So my thought process immediately is like, all right, ground beef is probably going to be your main thing here. Um, apple to me is the hard one in this. Apple's your oddball ingredient. Um, you know, is the rice already cooked or I'm cooking the rice? You're cooking the rice. All right. So I got to make rice. So first thing I'm doing is like, I got to cook rice. I got to get that done. Um, so I'm going to get it either steaming or boiling or however I'm going to do that. That's the first. So I'm like, I got to cook rice, avocado, apple, ground beef. I'm like, all right, cool. So you can make a really interesting, what I would probably end up doing with this dish. And this is the first thing I'm going to is I'm going to make some sort of a fried rice dish. Okay. I'm going to cook rice. Um, the problem with fried rice is that you need it to be kind of dried out when you're first cooking rice, it's going to be very wet at first, but I'm going to get rice going. I'm going to make, um, because we're doing apple and avocado, um, I'm going to probably get, you know, we'll go in Asian direction. I'm probably going to incorporate an egg into it for richness. Cause I really like like a fried egg on fried rice and I'll probably get the beef browned in some seasonings of like garlic and ginger and probably throw in some spice and then i'm gonna um do that and then when the rice is cooked it's gonna go directly out of the cooking process into a pan with a lot of fat so it starts to crisp up and all that kind of stuff i'm gonna do a lot of fresh herbs um scallion maybe some cilantro um the avocado, I'm going to probably make some sort of a, like an avocado puree of some sort, and I'm going to put it into a squeeze bottle or a piping bag so that I can do like a cool, like zigzag pattern across the top of the rice. Nice. In Japan, that's like a super popular way to top fried rices. They'll take like, they have a type of mayonnaise there called Kewpie mayo, and they'll kind of zigzag that across stuff or like spicy mayo. Mm -hmm. So I do something like that with the avocado, probably like a fried egg in the middle, some fresh herbs, and the apple being the oddball ingredient, most likely I would just like do a fine dice on that and cook that into the fried rice Mm -hmm. as like a textural component. Or you could potentially like, as like a sour component, you could like slice it and pickle it and do something with that as like an acidic component, like a side to the dish. Mm. So that's, that's, that's crazy. A, and so like I watched <laughs> that's awesome. a thousand episodes of chopped because uh-huh. I liked it because yeah. it was fun for me. Cause I would do that in my head as they were every episode. Yeah. And I would say like, I would pause it. And before they would start, I'd be like, all right, this is what I'm making. And then I would see what they would make. And I'd be like, really three salads. You guys are making three salads. You know, like some people might look at this and like, there's some obvious stuff like, 
like I'm gonna make the beef. So I'm gonna make a meatball and I'm gonna cook, I'm gonna grind the apple up into the meatball. Mm. And you know, like they try to, I don't know, like you'll see a lot of times on an episode of Chopped, you'll see like, especially in the first round, you'll see two or three chefs make things that are almost the exact same. Mm. And it's because that's the most easy place to go. Like if you look at, if is I that, give is you- Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a bad thing. Okay. Unless you're gonna crush it. Okay. Right, like you don't want to go with the obvious unless it's going to be amazing. A phenomenal. Because if yeah. you and two other people make the same dish, now they're picking which one of you made the worst of that three, and you're yeah. going home. Yeah, yeah. Even if the other guy made something pretty bad too. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, for me that is part. That's the huge part. Like I loved that part of the show because in my head I had done it a hundred times. And like, I'm like, that would be good. I know I could do that. Mm-hmm. I know I could do that in 20 minutes too. And you get to do it on the show. In the first episode, I did three dishes and I was like, you know, wiping up my board at the end. I'm like, I'm really happy with that food. I'm about, these judges are about to eat. Like, not only is it good for chopped, that's delicious. Like, I would eat the shit out of that. That's good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then the judges eat it and they confirm like, yeah, this is actually really good. Like, the flavor that you developed in that short amount of time is really impressive. And you're like, oh, thanks. I did this and this and that. And I did this, and you know they'll ask you a question about something else, and you go, yeah, like I'm good at this. It's a nice validation. Like, yeah, I knew sure. that I would do this, and I knew exactly how it would taste. And I did and it. They did it, and it was fun. Like, there's not really that in a restaurant, like ever, real. Like, mm. you do that with a dish. Like, we might work on a dish, like conceptually. I might think of it, and I'll jot it down. And then, you know, I write the idea down. And when it's time for the new menu, we're like, all right, let's start doing some recipe testing for the new menu. And sometimes the first sample comes together and you're like, that's exactly how I want it to go. That's pretty uncommon. Usually it's like, that's pretty good, but let's tweak a couple of things. You know, you're going to let most of the kitchen try it. You let some other people try it. All right. What does everybody think? Do we agree? All right. It needs, eh, it needs some of this. Sometimes you're like, this just isn't going to work. Yeah, this is not a dish we're going to keep going forward with. What's the, what's the, what's your most popular um, dish on the menu right now? Um, and, and how many times did you iterate to get there? Right now, it's the chicken parm. Okay. For sure. Like it's... All right, let's take the the other one. Okay, so... <laughs> Not the most um, common, I guess. I'll tell you what, like my favorite, mm. my favorite one on the menu, the, the wild the boar ragu, right? That That's in its third iteration. Okay. Um, like where it was on the menu two different ways for a while, and it's evolved oh, okay. into this. Okay. Um, the first try, I made it, and I was like, this is delicious, but it just morphed slowly over time into something else that's better. Um, and, but like, uh, we have a shrimp spaghetti on the menu and it's actually made with, we grind the shrimp. Um, so it's like a shrimp bolognese almost. Like Mm. if you're eating like spaghetti with meat sauce, it's like shrimp in a sauce like that. And the reason we do that is so you get shrimp in every bite and you're not having to like cut a piece of shrimp and the flavor is still there and all that, that dish, I had the idea in my head, we made it and it was like four or five tries in the kitchen, just tweaking little things. I was like, eh, it needs, it needs more heat. Like we need to go this direction. Like, all right, cool. That's good. But maybe we should change the noodle we're using on it. The noodle doesn't really work out. All right, cool. I like it with the basil, but it might all, all right. Now it gets mint and basil. All right, cool. And so you do that until it's, you know, and that, that's, that's the normal process. It's usually, a day or two of trying a few different versions until we settle on something. But sometimes you try it very rarely. You try it and it's like, that's perfect. We're not going to yeah. change that. What, but it happens every now and then. What's uh what's one that's not on the menu, but you're working on right now. 
Um, let's see. I'm going to pull up. I have a, a giant running list of notes. Oh, nice. That's they, I mean, they're it's years. This list is years old. Um, but, uh, let's see, like right now I'm working on a dish. Well, there's two or three. So working on a couple things with rabbit, we have a rabbit dish currently on the menu, but we want to do, um, some different stuff to try out in the near future. And, um, so we're working on a dish with like rabbit livers because the guy that we get rabbits from, he's a farmer in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. He's like, man, I got a ton of these livers. Wow. Like, you know, like if you want to try to do something with them and we get the rabbits from him. And so I tried them out and I love chicken livers and stuff like that. So I was like, yeah, I'll try it out. We'll see. So I'm working on a dish with that right now. That's like kind of like the idea is like liver and onions originally, but it's a risotto dish and, um, it's got some rabbit liver and different stuff. And it's, it's one of those ones where I say like, that's more of a stretch. Like that's a, that's a that's, stretch. That's one for me that like, if it makes it on the menu, it's going to be delicious. Mm-hmm. And if you would try it, you would probably love it. But the issue is like how many people are going to try it. So and I usually have like one dish like that on the menu at okay. a time um, where it's like, is it, look, is it like, it does it say on the menu? Oh, it's going to say rabbit, rabbit liver. liver. Yeah. You don't have some fancy hide- no. hideaway name. No. And, and what we'll typically <clears throat> do is we'll like, we'll typically tell the servers like, look, I would love for you to tell every table that that's chef's favorite dish mm-hmm. right now. And some people are going to go, I like liver. I'll try it. We had a chicken, we had a chicken liver dish on our menu in different forms for two years, mm. you know, different variations of the same kind of dish kind of played around. And we, we sold, we'd have, we had some people that like came every week for it. Oh, it's so good. We love it. And then some people were like, would never order it. Mm. And that's fine. You know, for mm. me, if I love it and I think it's awesome every now and then it's okay if it doesn't get sold that much, mm-hmm. you know? Right. And that, that's one of those. Um, but, but you know, then we're constantly working on just like kind of different stuff. Yeah. I think I would definitely not pick rabbit liver. Yeah. But if I go to a place and the waiter says this is the chef's favorite and it's delicious, I would probably I would probably pick it. And look, if I'm talking to tables, that's and that's I actually was going to say this earlier. I've literally never been to a restaurant where the chef came out and talked to me. Yeah. It's never happened. So like if I'm talking to a table and like let's say they come in and they're like, "Hey, is the chef there? We love to talk to him." Unless I'm just buried in the weeds, I'm going to go talk to him. Right. And if they're like, "Hey, do you what's your favorite?" I'll tell them. And if it's something that's a little more out there, I'll be like, "Listen, just try it. If you don't like it, really no harm, no foul. I'll take it off your bill and I'll get you something else. But you should really try it." Mm. Like and it, you have to read that, you know, like if it's the kind of table that like you know, they were going to order, just order a pepperoni pizza and they're not the most adventurous eater. And maybe that's not for them. But if they say like, you know, I grew up eating liver and onions at my grandma's house. Like, oh, then you need to try this. This yeah. is going to blow your mind. Yeah. This is, this is that done by somebody who took a lot of time to try to make it as good as possible mm-hmm. and be really thoughtful and delicious and different and unique. And when you eat it, it should remind you of what you ate as a kid. Like for me, like my granny used to cook liver and onions. Mm-hmm. And it was almost always served with your mashed potatoes or rice and gravy. And so for me, like the risotto is the rice. And then we're going to do like a super reduced, you know, rabbit stock with all the carcasses and all that stuff. You make a stock that's really flavorful. That's the gravy. You fry the rabbit liver. Rabbit livers are unlike chicken livers. Chicken livers, you got to cook till they're almost all the way done. A little bit of pink. Rabbit livers, 
um, if you cook them all the way, they tough as shit. Really? So you got to cook them like it's almost like like beef, like medium to mid rare. They mm. have like red inside. Mm. They're delicious. They're so good. They don't taste irony or livery. They're delicious. Mm. I didn't try them for the first time until like three or four weeks ago, testing some recipes out. And I ate it and I was like, oh my God, that's freaking good. Nice. You know, like that's super cool. And the guy's like, man, I got, you know, I got a freezer <laughs> got full a of them. I need to, yeah. I need you to, if you could try to sell them, you know, I'll hook you up. And, uh, nice. And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, does he like raise rabbits? He raises rabbits. Oh, okay. so he sells them to restaurants. Got he it. sells, he's a meat rabbit guy, him and his wife. Like, so we work with a lot of local farms. I was going to ask um, you about the local stuff too. Yeah. So they're right outside of Mississippi. Um, that's all they do. Raise rabbits. I mean, I'm sure they do other stuff, but like, that's their main deal. They raise rabbits for restaurants. Mm -hmm. It's really high quality stuff. Um, it's all vegetarian feed. There's no like antibiotics or hormones or any of that kind of stuff. And, um, and it's delicious and it's like a really sustainable food source because they eat like grass and lettuce yeah. and they produce this fantastic high quality protein that's delicious. Um, and then we work with like, we get all of our pork locally. We get our beef from Texas. Like a lot of our produce comes from farms around here. Um, you know, and like with produce, especially like freshness is, is killer. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't freeze most produce and right. it turn out good. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know where we went with that, but I don't know. I'm just learning. That's what I'm here to do. Uh, I wanted to ask you too about, um, uh, about like where you're headed, I guess. Okay. Um, but I did also want to ask you, we can't leave without asking you about Pelican house because, um, because you had quote your middle name, strong opinion as personally declared. So I was going to ask you <clears throat> what, what, what was your take of the Pelican house, uh, uh, situation because so we had big, we, the uh, had the restaurant and then like this is the, my take because I, I haven't talked to you about it actually but uh, restaurant closed and then like this letter came out from Gavin and like everybody was like oh we hate Gavin and like all this stuff yeah so Baton Rouge is a, is a tough town in the sense that like it's a town where like they're still opening chain restaurants that do really well like the year Pelican House closed they opened a Golden Corral they opened two <laughs> Applebee's in town. And like you look around, you're like, everybody knows these places aren't good, right? Like, but they're full. Mm -hmm. And then there's restaurants that are like good that are empty. And you're like, man, that's tough. That's a tough thing to see. Um, I'm not blaming, certainly not blaming Baton Rouge for our stuff. Our rent was really high. It was mm -hmm. a giant building. The last year we were open, we had two AC units go out, a hot water heater go out. We had a water main burst under the parking lot. Wow. We had like $45,000 in unexpected building maintenance costs hit us within like a four month period. You can't budget for that. Yeah. It's not a thing. And we were already, you know, struggling with a high rent in a tough location. And it was just a matter of, I was trying, this was still open or this was, you know, open and I'm trying to do both. And it was just, it was just a matter of like, man, like, I'm not like, I'm miserable. I'm not enjoying this. Mm -hmm. This is a lot of work and I don't see us digging ourselves out of this hole in a way that's like reasonable or mm -hmm. anytime soon. And like, I'm going to, I'm looking at five years of like hating this to maybe get out of it or we can just close it and I can focus all my attention mm -hmm. over here. And it was wild. It was like fate it was some crazy stuff. You know, I had a conversation with my dad, who was one of the investors in the Pelican House originally before I was even involved. And he was telling me, he's like, look, man, he's like, if you want to let it go, like if you think it's best to let it go, let's do that, you know? 
I'm like, oh, you know, I don't know. A lot of people invested money in this place. I feel terrible, like not them not getting their money back and stuff. And, you know, I can just work harder or whatever. We'll figure it out. And then I opened this book. Um, it's a Timothy Ferris book, uh, Tribe of Mentors, mm-hmm. where he interviews all these people. And the very first person he interviews is a girl named Samin Nosrat. She's a chef. She just had published uh, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, which is like a New York Times bestselling cookbook, had a little Netflix special. I'd seen both of those. And, she, and like four or five lines in, she says, like, it's the first page of Timothy Ferris's book after the, the little, you know, prelude or whatever. And she says, closing a restaurant is like not always a bad thing. Like sometimes it's a good thing, blah, blah, blah. And like that's so I, I read that and I'm like, oh, my gosh, like this is wild. Like I, I got this book a month ago. I open it today. I had this conversation with my dad yesterday. Yeah. It's the first thing I read. And then I had also watched a Netflix documentary called 42 Grams. And it's about this couple that owned a restaurant together that were trying to get a Michelin star. And he said something in the opening lines. And I, I, I don't remember what it was, honestly, but he said something and it was about passion and about loving what you're doing and about being happy with what you're doing. And I remember listening to him say that and I paused it and I started like crying. And I was like, how profound, like that's so profound. That was the day before that. Wow. And so all this kind of happened at one time and I was like, I reassessed and I was like, man, like I'm really just not happy doing this anymore. And it's putting a, a huge amount of stress and strain on me. And, um, you know, I just don't want to do it. And, you know, I, when I was like, at that point, I was like, man, you know, all my friends in Baton Rouge that are chefs, all my, like, I mean, I've been in the service industry in Baton Rouge for 10 years. They all think the same stuff I think. And I was like, I'm going to write this letter and say the stuff that nobody that has a business in Baton Rouge can say because it would ruin their business. Mm-hmm. But I don't anymore. And so I was like, well, I'm going to close. I got nothing to lose in this town. I'll just go ahead and say what's on all the chefs I know's mind. So as much like public scrutiny as I got from people, like all my friends that were chefs and people that didn't even know me that were chefs and stuff, like private messages be like, hey, man, like, thanks for saying that. Mm. Like, thanks for saying what we can't say. So like that was all the I didn't really need validation, but it was nice to hear from other chefs and other people in the business that were like, yeah, it does suck to to leave your restaurant. You put 14 hours in and you were dead all night and then you drive past Chili's and there's a line <laughs> of people out the door. Yeah. And the food's the same price. Yeah. You're like, I'm not even charging people more. And like, you'd rather support that than me. Like, <clears throat> it's kind of disheartening. And then also, you know, like and not to say that we were perfect. Look, man, we had plenty of shortcomings. We did a lot of things wrong. Um and had plenty of issues of our own. So not not to say that like, oh, we closed because of Baton Rouge. That wasn't what that was about. We closed because of money and because of just business stuff. But on my way out, I was like, let me just speak up a little bit for everybody that's struggling with the same stuff. Um, so do you think it's gotten any better since you wrote the letter? I think to some extent, you know, and I did say like, look, I said in the letter, like there's plenty of great chefs in this town right. doing great stuff. Support those people. Stop going to chain restaurants and support your local chefs. I have friends in town and I, I had friends at the time that like I think were great chefs doing really great stuff. And that letter was more for them. It didn't it wasn't for me anymore. I didn't care. I was gone. And it was just like, man, if I can at least get some people to have a conversation and go, yeah, maybe we shouldn't all go to Applebee's again. Or like, look, I love PF Chang's. Fantastic. I love Chinese food. I think it's one of the best chains in America. But like if I have a choice to go to PF Chang's and spend the exact same amount of money 
is I do at Beau Soleil, which is a family-owned restaurant 250 yards away. That's the same price. That's delicious. That, you know, if they do well, the two owners that took put everything on the line to open it, they succeed versus some big corporation. <clears throat> I would much rather spend my money there, you know, if mm-hmm. I have a choice. And you do have a choice. Mm-hmm. And so that was it. Um, I think it's gotten a little better. There seems to be some more stuff. I don't make it into Baton Rouge a ton anymore, but I still have a ton of friends that are there. And, you know, there's some people doing good stuff there. And I think, you know, Baton Rouge is just a little behind the times when you look at like, there's certain cities that like, they don't allow chain restaurants to open up in. Really? Like that's super cool. If you're a restaurateur to know that you're not competing against somebody that you can't really compete against on a financial level. Like Mm. you can't out advertise Applebee's. You can't out, you know, you can't undersell them because they can just drop their price even more. You know, like Applebee's does 99 cent margaritas every day of the week. Wow. (laughs) All the time. I can't do that. They lose money on that. They don't care. It's a loss leader. No big deal. No big deal. They Mm. don't care because they got somebody in the door and they can afford to do that and good for them. But if I got to compete with that, that's tough, mm. you know, and if and if you're swayed enough by that, then that sucks for me, mm. you know. Um, so what's uh, so speaking of uh, different markets and things um, you have, you mentioned like a couple hours ago that you mentioned that you have the other Marie boat in New Orleans. So what how does that I actually had two, a couple questions about it. How do you how is that operating like with you here pretty much all the time? And then also, where's the next Mariba opening up? And is it going to turn into the the chain? OK, uh, so I have experience. a fantastic guy that works with me in New Orleans. He's our like manager there. He's actually uh, about to become a partner in it. So after him being there, he, you know, he runs it day to day. I'm He's over a chef there. too? He's a chef. Okay. I'm over there every now and then. I pop in. I'll be there tomorrow, like I said. But he's a super talented guy, really cares, you know, passionate, stuff you can't teach. Um, and then, you know, he's running that. And there it's a lot simpler. There's only three employees over there. There's mm-hmm. no servers. It's a walk-up counter service deal. And we go over there on particularly busy days or days stuff needs to get done. And... You know, um, so then was that opening, was that to test the market? Was that to get your brand out there both, more? Both. To we make, to was it to what, make some more money too? We wanted to see what New Orleans was like. Yeah. Um, New Orleans is like one of the greatest food cities in the world. So to get your foot in the door there and kind of see what's going on, kind of feel the pulse, see how it's received. Um, I don't, if somebody approached me and said, I want to open another Maribo and gave me like, the golden key kind of deal, I would be interested, but I really, that was another concept in mind that is kind of like my dream restaurant concept. Um, that would be just a little different. It's, it's more based on my heritage. Um, and so that's what I would really want to do. I think that, you know, if this restaurant gets where I want it to be in the next, you know, two to three, four years, um, then I think we'll be approached with opportunity to do something else. Um, but if I had to like put all my own money down again, I would probably just stay here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just an enormous risk. Mm-hmm. And even if you're really, really good at it and everything goes r- pretty well, you could still lose everything. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I did that once 
and it's been remarkably hard and we're just now getting to a point where it looks like it might pay off, but it hasn't so far, right? Um, there's a huge perception of like, oh, you own a restaurant, you must be loaded. <laughs> you must be rolling. Yeah. You know, and it's like not even close. Yeah. You know, like most restaurants, if they're really well run, make 10% profit. Mm. That's a good job. You know, you got to figure like you do a, let's say a restaurant does a million a year. Yeah. That's a decent sized small restaurant. It's a hundred thousand dollars in profit, but you pay taxes mm -hmm. and then you do all this other stuff. And maybe at the end of the year, if you did really well, cause you still have to have like money going back into the restaurant. Maybe you took home 50 grand, mm -hmm. you know, like, and you worked 15 hours a day. Yeah. Like what other job? Like if I wanted to be an engineer mm -hmm. and I, or like, let's say I wanted to be, let's say I wanted to be a guy that cut grass and I cut grass 15 hours a day, I would make way more money, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. And so it's just a matter of like, hopefully it pays off in the long run and you get an opportunity to do something else. Um, but so, also it's, you know, if, if this place does what I think it's capable of in the next two to three years, it'll give me a comfortable living and I won't have to work quite as hard because then you have a staff that can, you can rely on a little more and does things. But, um, I would love to get to a point where I can step away from this place and have the opportunity to open up the restaurant that I like have kind of always wanted to open. Mm. So that, so, all right, so let's finish the podcast. Definitely talking about the future. What's, what's the, what I definitely want to hear about this concept that you, your dream concept, but then I want to know if you're going to be 30 years from now, if you're going to be a three-star Michelin chef in, in New York city, or if you're going to be, you know, No. so I talked about that earlier a little bit. That's a whole different thing. It's not really my thing. I would love to go work in a kitchen like that to observe and see. And I think I could probably get a lot of takeaways as far as like efficiencies and just fundamentals and certain things like that. But that's not really what I want to do. Um, I think it's fascinating and some of it is so good. And I would love to kind of test myself in a situation like that. Like I would love to go work the line the line being like the actual, like I'd love to be a cook at a Michelin level restaurant for a few months. I'd love to know if I can hack it, mm -hmm. you know, like as a mm -hmm. test. Cause it's like, you're stepping up to the big leagues mm -hmm. and I think I'm a great cook technically and you know, speed wise and all that kind of stuff, but you don't really know till you step up to that level. Mm -hmm. And, but I'm at like when you're young, like if I didn't own a restaurant, I would go do that right now. I would go work at one of those places and I would see, and mm -hmm. I would see what it's like. But when you own a restaurant, you can't really leave for a few months to go do stuff like that. So I would love to get to a point where I can leave here and do some stages around the country. And not all stages are tryouts. Sometimes it's just to go work at a place to learn stuff and you work for free. I would love to do that at a couple of higher end restaurants just to kind of see what else is out there and see kind of behind the scenes some of that stuff. And also... Um, just to test myself kind of a mm -hmm. thing. So that was, that's something that's on my radar that I'm trying to get to by this time next year, I would have loved to have done two or three, one week stages at really great restaurants. Cool. Um, so that's kind of something I'm trying to do. And then the dream restaurant is called Oleander. Uh, it's named after the street. My granny lives on and has lived on since I was a kid. It's kind of where I found, I love food. It's also the name of a flower, very common in the South. Um, I've got pages of notes on this restaurant um, and, you know, uh, it's just a very refined take on 
Southern food and like the food I grew up eating, a lot of it is Cajun influenced. Um, and I say refined, like it's just not, and, and that might even change to some extent too. Like I wanted, I used to want to do it like very high end. And mm -hmm. over time it's become like, I just want to take the food that my granny used to cook and then take really great cooking fundamentals that we know make food taste better. Like instead of buying like the cheapest chicken they have at Winn-Dixie, <laughs> let me buy like a really excellent chicken. And then, okay, how did she cook this dish? Okay, were there any things that she could have done differently to make it taste better from a cooking fundamental standpoint? Let's do those things. You know, instead of using water to add to a dish, we're gonna add chicken stock made from all the bones of that chicken. So it's gonna have more flavor. Mm -hmm. And instead of using like, you know, Tony Sachery's, we're gonna use, you know, really good spices that are like freshly ground and still intensely flavorful and all this kind of stuff. And the end result is going to be something that when you eat it, it's going to remind you, or at least for me, man, this tastes so much like my childhood, like just like at granny's house, but it's even better. And, or, or it's just different. Like, yeah, like it looks like, or it, it tastes just like that, but it looks like something totally different. Um, and that's, that's kind of where I would like to see it. So it's a strong, like, it's a lot of Southern stuff, which, you know, um, it's just like, that's food that I'm really in love with and passionate about. And I cook like here with a lot of Southern influence, but like, and I love cooking pasta and pizza and stuff like that. But I would love to delve more into like my actual heritage and food culture, which is like Acadia and Cajun, like Lafayette, Opelousas area. Um, you know, I grew up with that. Like my uncle still owns a butcher shop and grocery store in Washington, Louisiana, where he makes, in my opinion, like legitimately some of the best sausages I've ever eaten in my entire life. He makes boudin like once every couple of years because it's a he thinks it's a pain in the ass. He doesn't like to make <laughs> it. But like, you know, he I grew up around that. And mm -hmm. I grew up around like going get vegetables out of my granny's garden to that's what we're having with dinner. Like what's in season, cucumbers, tomatoes, like that's what we're having with dinner tonight because that's what's in the garden. And we're not going to buy vegetables from the grocery store when there's stuff in the garden because she was raised in the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, I don't remember ever having a steak at her house ever. It was cheap cuts of meat, you know, mm -hmm. it was like smother, everything was in a gravy and cooked for a long time. And it was like, anybody can make a steak taste good if you buy a really nice steak. But if you have like these cheap, gristly cuts of meat, it takes a really know what you're doing. Like you gotta know what you're doing to make that delicious. Yeah. And so I grew up with that. And so that's kind of where I see it. I've got a lot. I mean, I could talk to you about that restaurant for like four more hours, <laughs> so we can't go there, but um, we could go there. That's, <laughs> that's kind of where I see myself. Like I, I see myself doing this for a while. If something comes along an opportunity, if the right opportunity came along for me to do Oleander in a place where it was, low risk um for me where it wouldn't create like i just don't want to deal with the stress again um you know like i'm confident in the food and stuff like that but i don't want to be worried every day about like you know like am i going to be able to afford to like mm -hmm. pay payroll and stuff i don't want to i don't want to go it, through that again is there <clears throat> is there any um to push you a little is there in is the success of marivo um attributed a lot to the stress that you went through <clears throat> Probably. Um, yeah. Like, would mean, you be able to, would you be able to craft the vision of Oleander? Oh yeah. Without no, some could, of the no, for sure. I think, <laughs> no, I think you can. Um, I think 
a lot of the stress came from, oh, it's your first time doing this. You're doing it. You're figuring everything out as you go. Mm-hmm. Like I could do, like if we could redo this again from the beginning, knowing what I know now, we'd be so much further along, mm-hmm. you know, and we would have made so few, so many fewer mistakes mm-hmm. and we would have, you know, like, yeah, it's huge. So like I could, like if I had the same amount of money I had to open this place mm-hmm. to open Oleander, I would do it much better. Mm-hmm. That being said, even still, you still put a lot on the line. And, but I don't think putting all that on the line is, I think that actually is, if you are the type of person that really wants to be successful, then I don't think you need the fear of failure to push you forward. Um, so like here, it's like, we have to make this work because this is all our money. Mm-hmm. If I got a chance for another one, would I work any less hard for it? No, because the the we're not doing this because we don't want to fail. We're doing this because we want it to be great, you know. And so it's the fear of failure is not the biggest motivation. And I think, you know, if fear of failure is your biggest motivation, then then it's not going to be the best it could be anyway, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so for me, I would love to do a restaurant and and I think you would be for me even more freeing like all right if we're not if if I'm not worried every day about payroll mm-hmm. and this then how much more attention can I focus on making mm-hmm. this place excellent um so yeah I mean I, I that's where I would love to be cool dude I think we're going to freaking end right there I'm good with that I appreciate you giving me two and a half hours this was happy a phenomenal to do it, man. conversation. Thank you so much. Gavin, thanks for having me in your awesome restaurant. I'll thanks, be back Chase. as soon as possible. Yeah, man. I, haven't, I have to confess, I haven't eaten here yet. I That's feel horrible. I'll be back. Well, By the way, is Oleander a New Orleans restaurant? I don't know. It was for a long time. Now now it's not. Is now it a Baton Rouge be, restaurant? It's not Baton Rouge. Darn. <laughs> not Baton Rouge. It's not Baton Rouge for now. Maybe, look, by the time I'm ready to do Oleander, maybe I'll feel like going home be. and doing that. It could be. Maybe so cool man i appreciate it it. thanks a lot very much thanks everybody for checking out this episode of the podcast again with my friend chef gavin job thanks again gavin it was a real pleasure and i appreciate you spending so much time with me um this episode was unofficially sponsored by maribo modern italian If you are in the Covington area or are nowhere near the Covington area, you've got to go check out Maribo, Gavin's Restaurant. I am actually going in four days, three, what's today? Today's today's Monday, four days. I'm going in four days for my first experience at Maribo and I am pumped about that. Also, make sure you follow Gavin on Instagram. His handle is Chef Gavin Job, spelled like it sounds. And his restaurant's Instagram is at Maribo Pizza. Thanks again, Gavin, for your time. And thank you, everyone, for listening.